That's why you're here. That's why you're listening because this shit never changes. <laughs> we read shit and we get stoned, and that's just how we operate. You know, someone fucking get this. As I like blunt, uh, someone thanked me for releasing episodes during the quarantine. Yeah. Ah. Uh. I said, "Why the fuck are you thanking me? You're like." I should be thanking you. You're fucking yeah, stuck you're... at home listening to my shit. <laughs> you can't you're, go anywhere. You're the reason why this is still going on. I mean, now more than ever, right? Yeah. Um, here was how I was going to start the episode. I was going to immediately start the episode by being like, let me lay down facts, all right? This is a really confusing time for our country. This is a real confusing time Socially, politically, Bottom house, not that. economically. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of shit going on, and there's a lot of stuff in the air, and uh, there's a lot of public unrest. But let me be clear. Let me state only facts. Do not shave your pubes. Unless you know for sure that you are getting laid. No, I've been shaving them. You immediately have to disagree with me. I mean, I'm also... You immediately like, have to... Okay, realistically, actually, let me, let me throw some truth instead of being an asshole. I have not shaved my pubes during the quarantine, but I have been getting laid. <laughs> so, so while I do agree with you, it is for a different reason... And I'm just like, yeah, it's it's been a couple years. Like, you you know what it is. I know what that, you know. Uh, All right. So let me speak to you from my lonely single perspective as yeah. I've been <coughs> doing nothing yeah. but mercilessly beating my meat <laughs> since March. Um, let me. Hey, I have been doing that as well. <laughs> but you're also getting laid. So there you go. Uh, it's, it's not as frequent. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, ah, it's not as good as my hand sometimes. <laughs> mm. And my hand doesn't talk back afterwards. <laughs> no, but seriously, man, like, I, um, I, I have been flirting with this chick, and she's been leading me on and leading me on, and I will say that. I will be that guy that says chicks lead guys on all the time. Like, they do. They fucking do. And, uh... Yeah. As the beta receptive to that more often than not. It is... Yeah. 
it is just a, a, a mental foot race sometimes. And, um, and I, I did the premature thing of taking care of my, uh, downstairs mix up since this whole quarantine. I haven't, I haven't done the, you know, the trimming the hedges and I, I did some fantastic work and, uh, when it comes time to do the deed, girl is uh, radio silent. Yeah. <laughs> Just immediately renegs on coming over and doing nothing but fuck. And, um, but fuck. But I just want to say, like, ladies and gents, like, don't do it unless you know they're on their way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the state of New York did put out um, a flyer. I mean, they do put out. Yeah, that entire uh, state puts out, man. It was like it's okay to have sex. You should be avoiding things like you know touching tongues. Also, don't eat out assholes. <laughs> you know, like they they straight up said, "Hey, you know, groin to groin action is a okay. Tongue to tongue action is way less okay, and tongue to butt action is absolutely not okay." They're like, here's how to here's how to gauge what you should and you shouldn't know, do. You know what to... I like more than that is that multiple of those people had to sit around in a room and talk oh, about yeah. it. Yeah. Before getting someone to publicly say it. Yeah. And then even then, like someone's dad is like standing up there having to say these things to like hundreds of people. And you're just like, Well, thank you for that. You gave that new life. Um where am I, I folks? I Smoking didn't... my blunts better than I do. <laughs> yeah, let's I give him a burn let's give him round. I'm gonna I'm gonna institute a uh, clap track for this episode only. <laughs> give enough. it up, give it up for where am I, everybody? It's, he's great. He's great. He smokes my blunts better than I do. The secret is you gotta you gotta warm it up and then hit. Ah, you're a genius. No, I'm just a scientist. Except I'm a f- not really. I'm... <laughs> just end Moving there. Right just, to fuck just, on. just end there. Just yeah. End there. Uh, we're here to do something uh, fun, and uh, it's it's nothing related to my pubes. Um, I just wanted everyone to know. I guess about I can leave now. My discomfort <laughs> recently. Um, I do nothing but sit in a chair and work all day, so my my freshly shaven balls are not enjoying themselves <laughs> against my thighs. Um, anyway, that's a lot of information. For only six minutes into this episode. Yeah. So, uh, is that all you're thinking about, too? Just, like, my balls on my thighs right now? It's pretty... I mean, I, I have a pretty good visualization in my head. It is uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like a little Bruce Willis just headbutting my thigh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's not happy to be in that he's... film franchise. Yeah, he is uh, f- fresh-shaven and prickly. He's being asked by Kevin Smith to do Ride Along 2, and uh, he is furious. Dude, I, uh, I'm i here with Where Am I to do something we haven't done in a while. I don't know mm. if people remember this. Let me just like bring it up real quick. Uh, we did a series like 40 episodes ago, but it was so forgettable because... Mm-hmm. It disappointed both of us. Oh yeah, immeasurably. It started off about like a crazy short stories around shit happening around the same town, 
and we were all wondering how it was going to come together because it just seemed to be about murderers and cults and rituals and stuff. And then uh, in the fourth episode, we find out that it's about like a war between angels and demons, angels and, and demons, and it's totally trite and it just yeah. kind of ends. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was one of like as we were developing the stories in our heads. I think, essentially, our storytelling was stronger than the story storytelling. Well, yeah, because we loved the material so yeah. much. We we had given into almost this trap mm-hmm. that it was going to have a, a payoff. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I expected something like Seven, where it's like, oh, this guy who's been murdering people is just like a nut who's tapping into some supernatural powers and yeah. shit through, through evidence of the cult that they were setting up. And it's clear this guy had, like, powers, you know? Like, so, like, here I expect almost like a deadly premonition type of pseudo-supernatural like serial killer yeah and it just turns into well there are angels and there are demons and there are monsters and there's a like a war between them and then never develop it and then end the story immediately Mm -hmm. it like it had a supernatural aspect um and then it like switched to um like a religious aspect but it not completely and it sort of left the religious aspect of it untouched and say, hey, there's religion here and I'm not going to touch it at all. <laughs> and then end the story. Yeah. And then end the story. They start dropping like Latin and I know like with Latin you're supposed to think like, oh, like spooky Satan shit. And we thought that like in like episode mm-hmm. three. Yeah. You know, we thought that. And then episode four comes around and it's all biblical Latin and we're just like, no. Yeah. No. No one likes your religious twist. It's not it's not good. It's overplayed. Mm-hmm. It's tale as old as time. It's literally the fucking Bible. Like we don't need it. Do do something more original and something more cool. Um cuz let me tell you, you well, and I could have gone back and rewritten parts 3 and 4 yeah. and it would have been a much better story. <laughs> Even if it had been like a little edgy, like, you know, a fallen angel or, you know, a turned demon or something that blurred the lines a now, little bit more. No, it was even pettier than that. It yeah. was like there was a classing. Oh, yeah. There was a rank, and, and one of the like, demons was calling another demon out on rank. Like, that's mm. how fucking, like, supernatural, like, I'm talking the TV show. Like, that's yeah. how, that's how like, overplayed that was. <laughs> it reminded me of Supernatural when, mm. like, one of the newer seasons starts, and, like, the, the for some reason... Like, the first 15 minutes is just about some insignificant demon that shows up later in the episode and probably gets killed. Like, that's what it felt like. And that was the finale to Mm. this series. So you just, you start the final act with a character you know nothing about. And then he just proceeds to tell you that everything we've been interpreting thus far has been wrong. And it's really just demons. And then at that point, you're just like, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> and as much as I love reading with you, you can't breathe life into, like, a story that isn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there have been some really great readings on this show in series or stories that just, like, really didn't, like, pull through at the end. <laughs> and, um... 
I mean, that's what you get when you when you're looking towards a community based, like community created type. Stories. Exactly, public domain. No. Yeah, you know, like, like the the free word mm-hmm. of written speech. It's just a it's a it's a necessary byproduct of that form of uh, either communication or entertainment, however you want to interpret that. At the same time, I'm not like. I'm not digging the author, you know? Like, I'm not saying, yeah. like, fuck you, stop writing. Yeah, no. I'm just saying, we, you know... We all have to identify our weaknesses before we're able to grow. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to I'd identify I'd say it's the weakness. only thing that keeps you growing. Is exactly. Is people Absolutely. teaching you things. And you learning things. So it's just like, just understand, you know, if if... We've had authors of stories tell me to read their stories on the show. We've had, um... We've had authors fucking listen to our episodes before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know that for a fact. So it's just like... Uh, we are only going to do as best as we can with the material. And what we say about it is not to degrade the material. It It is said in a critical fashion. You know, I'd like to think that we are having some type of critical dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um I, yeah, I think we're, that we're... separates us from other podcasts. We're not we're not just reading the stories. Like obviously, yeah. this is episode one hundred and sixty two. You realize that we're not just reading the stories. We're talking about them. I mean, we're you, we're to, digging into them. To read the story, you could literally copy and paste it into like a, a Google an, talk an or, audio processor. Yeah, like right. The, and the just Google have the talk. computer read it out. And I think that shit exists. And I know that there oh, are... I know it does. And I, I know that there it. are people who just have reading channels. And this isn't a fuck you to them either. This yeah. is just this is just us doing something different. There's 52 flavors at Baskin Robbins for a reason. Not everybody likes the same thing. So you can create that diversity. Uh, <laughs> we are the... Uh, we're like the rocky road of... We're of like... podcasting. Uh... We're like the knockoff brand Rocky Road. <laughs> like, it's almost Rocky Road, and then they added, like, something, like, off, like, pistachios mixed with Rocky Road and, like, named it all something right, else. All right, all right, all right, I guess I was giving us too much of a compliment. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd probably put us more in the, uh... I mean, it's good, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I fucking love yeah, pistachios. Yeah, but you'll eat anything. Well... <laughs> Yeah, that's um, fair. Shit. Episode 162. I guess what I'm pre-coursing this entire conversation is leading up to the fact that we're starting a new series today. Because I think people have been looking forward to the the next new series. I think the last thing we did was um, Cannibal Sirens... No. Was Spire in the Woods after that? Uh, we did an exorcism story with Cannibal Siren that was three episodes long. And then I think we did Spire in the Woods with Tenron. Um, I think that was our last series. Um, I'm not counting the fucking Santa Claus journey bullshit with Frowns. That is Frowns' fault. That is not a series in my eyes. Um, That's fair. I can see a lot of things going in that direction. <laughs> If you've listened to any of those episodes, anyone who's listening, that was all Frowns' fault. Don't blame me for how that wasn't a series, but was a series at the same time. Um, yeah, man. Uh, we're here to start a new series because your last one was, like, just... We wanted more. We were so thirsty. 
that was such a thirsty time on this podcast, and we needed something juicy. I'm hoping this story is juicy. Uh, I forget when I got this. I forget who recommended this, but I do remember this one coming up on someone's, like, best of no sleep list. Okay. And that is why it's here. Um, I know that when a no sleep series is copied by me to be read on the show, because I don't write this, all credit is reserved by the people who um, wrote these stories. We're here just to digest them. Um, I know that if I pulled something from no sleep that it was there for a reason. Like, uh, it was a series that was getting a lot of good feedback. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff I've been eyeing up recently. I want to get into more relative stuff, but, um, this one I know I've had for a while. Um, and when you read the title to yourself, uh, where am I? Um, what is it that you think? Um, so the, the title is a curious mind is a terrible curse. And the immediate thing that pops into my head is... Like, f- fucking, amen, right? Like, that, <laughs> a, a amen. Hallelujah. A curious mind is a terrible curse. Uh, I have, I have no disagreement. Um, I've said a lot of times, so I'll, I'll kind of go into a, just a little bit. Um, not to sound braggy, but I do have a higher intelligence than the average human. I don't think that's braggy. I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> I did have a Mensa certification for a period. Uh, I absolutely would trade everything in my head in terms of like my intelligence modifier. I would get rid of it in a heartbeat for a little bit extra happiness. Well, for a lot of bit extra happiness. You know, it'd have to be like that's fair. A, a, a massive. We are swing, sometimes but... burdened by our knowledge. So I'm, I'm all for this. Uh... A curious mind is a terrible curse. Um. For me, I go immediately to famous so-and-so, uh, Curiosity Killed the Cat. Yeah. Um, I, I my mind rationalizes if you go looking for shit, you're gonna find shit. hmm And a lot of me tries to fight that instinct whenever it comes up in my life. So I look at a curious mind is a terrible curse as like this person learned something that they were not meant to learn. Like this is um huh. this is the person who dies for two minutes and then when he wakes up he's just like, You guys do not want to know what comes after this. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the story, like if it was like that, that would be a story worth telling, you know, like um a curious mind. This is someone who uh, thought knows the wrong thing, or it's as simple as someone who thought their parent or stepdad or whatever was killing coeds and went looking to find out and then realized, Holy shit, my stepdad is killing coeds. Yeah. Like, it could be that simple of a story. Yeah, a curious mind is a terrible curse, can go in so many directions, but the only thing it is saying is, I got curious. I went looking, and I was not happy with the results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for me, that is a perfect story. Yeah. Because um, 
you could say the left-right game was a very terrible curse for a very curious mind. You can say that Odd Kids, Odd Kids mm-hmm. was a very terrible curse for a very curious mind. Yeah. Why don't we cross the river? I don't know. Don't cross the river. Crosses the river. <laughs> Fucking dead. Yeah, sh- <laughs> like, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you know, like, curious mind, terrible curse. Like, for me, this is, uh, this is, <laughs> just riddled with anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> I am just like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> don't you, don't you open that door. Um, so yeah, I'm all riled up. I think this is going to be hilarious. Um, uh, because like I said, this, this could be like fucking Cthulhu, you know, like mm. I, this is at the end of the uh, at the mountains of madness they're flying away in the plane they just escaped some terrible fate they hear a noise undescribable behind them with a blinding light one person turns around to look and when that person turns back around they cannot speak audible english all they do is scream because they literally were driven mad by what they saw at the end of that story that is a terrible curse for a curious mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any thoughts? I'm ready to hop right in. You're ready to hop right in. So I'm going to let you take it. Okay. You want to start it. Um, this one's called A Curious Mind is a Terrible Curse from Reddit No Sleep. That's the way it's always been for me. Some of my earliest memories are of secretly listening to my dad swapping ghost stories with his buddies while I sat wrapped in the room next door. Ghosts. I can't help it. I have a yearning to know the great unknown. Jesus. Uh, in some macabre way, I've always wanted to experience something paranormal for myself, just so I can know the truth. Truth is with a capital T. I uh, fucking called it. <laughs> great unknown was as well, which uh, I thought was unknown. interesting. Uh, Reference. Yeah. <laughs> Over time... I never did encounter anything that logic and reason could not explain. Uh, the old, the adult world was ultimately very rational. The childhood wonder and possibilities dissolves quickly into the reality of a serious job and mortgage. But all that changed recently. The house I grew up in was a small wooden building in the middle of suburbia. It was, without question, the oldest house in the street which was how we could afford to live in it. Uh, I'd always wondered if it was haunted. Oh, absolutely. Anything (laughs) that old must have had some dark history to it. He knows. But it was always uneventful. Uh, There was some constant... uh, There was some constant the scratching noises above my bedroom at night, uh, and it turned out to be just pigeons roosting in the ceiling. Uh, Once I was ten... I was playing alone on the floor of my bedroom. My heart suddenly froze when I could distinctly hear the sound of snorting coming from my bed. I could hear the sound grow louder and louder. I saw, I stared at my bed and saw nothing there. Mustering what little courage I had, I yelled out, Hello? Who's there? Where am I? (laughs) And all I got back was a loud, horrible snore. I grabbed an umbrella and gingerly walked towards my bed, 
heart pounding furiously. There wasn't anything moving as I poked my blanket and pillow. It was then that I noticed the window above the bed was slightly open. The moment I closed it, the snoring stopped. It was nothing more than the wind whispering through the cracks. Another experience was the nightly terrors that would strike me in my sleep. I would often awake to the sensation of my blanket being ripped away and my body being held down while a dark, angry entity strangled my throat so hard that the bed would rattle. It made me call it Daddy. <laughs> ah. The first time, I thought it was just a vivid, terrible nightmare. But when it happened again and again, night after night, I started to panic. Whatever it was, it was relentless. Let me let me stop you there. Um, had you ever listened to the series I did with Gestalt? Probably not. Um, it was called Bedtime. Okay. Oh I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting flashbacks. I uh, I definitely I don't think I've listened to it. Like no, while, while even, focusing even, on I it. I think I brought it up on another but, one of your yeah, episodes. Yeah. Um, but like. It's just this guy chronicling his experience, like, with ghosts. And and it starts really great, but much, you know, like how some series goes, it just turns out to be a demon. And yeah. then the stories just end. <laughs> so, you know, here's, here's a knock on wood, folks. I'm gonna... Um... I don't want this to end with demons. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a little nice. Um, um, but I like its direction so far. The The premise of being a scared kid and experiencing something supernatural, like, yeah, no. I will say that based on there not being a gender assigned, as sure. soon as you said the, the it made me call it daddy, it is now in my head an e-girl. And like I can't get that image of the e-girl. She's selling this. her bathwater. Oh like, god, yes. Oh man, like <laughs> she's you know. selling her bathwater and uh, underwear she has claimed to wear but never did. Oh um, yeah. To to daddies online, literally this in, this entire story. Her OnlyFans is sixty percent off for the quarantine. <laughs> but at night, let me tell you, she's having some weird shit happen to her. Cool. As I seemed to always survive each attack, though, I thought I was just going crazy. Thankfully, I learned about sleep paralysis a few months later. Changing my sleeping pattern stopped it from happening again. Uh, so everything paranormal that I've experienced was ultimately very rational. Uh, like the famous poster in Fox Mulder's office, I want to believe, but ultimately found the evidence lacking. But I can find no explanation for what's happened to me recently. Uh, I have decided to take a break and spend a few weeks backpacking in Vietnam. Starting from Ho Chi Minh City, we took a winding journey northwards through the muddy roads along the coast. It was miles and miles of mostly untouched wilderness, broken by the occasional village uh, and some of the best pristine beaches in the world. Uh, it was in one particular stretch that we spent a full day soaking in the sun and surf, the worries of the world a thousand miles away. As daylight made way to twilight, we feasted on some amazing seafood we had caught earlier in the day. Sleeping under an open sky 
is an amazing experience, especially far away from the pollution lights of civilization. It was to this glorious view of the heavens that I awoke around 3 a.m., feeling the less glorious call of nature, urging me to the nearest toilet. I'd take shit. <laughs> it was a humid night, the sounds of insects chirping in their nightly symphony. I groggingly made my way through the path to the basic facilities set up for campers. It was in a clearing with male toilets lined along one side of a 30-foot-wide crude concrete floor facing another row of female toilets. Um, what is the gendering of toilets? Um, Are they just saying, like, like men urinal go over versus... here, women go over here? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I think I mean, that's in, what it's trying yeah, to say. In, in a campsite, that makes sense, where, like, there's simply, like, the toilets are all open, and there's, like, a, a, it's just a lewd wall. It. Yeah. I mean, my my initial thought was uh, urinals versus seats. That's a good point. Um, I think it's fairly obvious that the um, the author, uh, this English is not their first language. Yeah. You're, uh, getting, you're getting that vibe? There's certainly been some, some There have been tenses. some weird verbs and, and adjectives, uh, use, use and, and tenses, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no. Not a problem. I mean, I'll, I'll stutter right through as I usually do. <laughs> uh, between the rows in the center was a waiting area with a makeshift lamp hanging above to light the yard. As I approached, I saw an old man standing under the lamp with his back towards me. All I could see was his scraggy long hair that reaches past his shoulder and a thin old bony body jutting up from his thin clothing rags. No, you did, know, I'd turn around. Did <laughs> he ever sh- say if he was going left or right? I'd go shit in the woods. <laughs> yeah. No, nothing has been said. Like, I, I'm still... I, I just want to know the goddamn gender. I don't know. I think we're gonna find out. Just Yeah. Uh, slightly freaking out. I wasn't expecting anyone to be around at this time of night. I coughed politely to make him aware of my approach. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want an old man your dick. <laughs> I didn't want an old man's heart attack from fright weighing on my conscience. He was probably a local villager waiting on his wife, since electricity and running water was scarce in the scattered collection of homes in the area. My wife is dead. He didn't seem to notice me, so I let him be and made my way to the nearest mail stall. Yeah. I would have to assume the narrator now says they have a penis. <laughs> As I closed the door, I could still see him in my line of sight. Though I was now 90 degrees from where I fir- from where I first saw him, he still had his had his back to me. It was definitely odd, but certainly far from threatening. Besides, I had more urgent pressing matters, particularly against my bowels. Shit. Yeah. The toilet was barely more than a hole in the floor, with a flimsy, undersized door that was all that stood between you and your dignity. The overwhelming stench (laughs) of human waste filled my sense as I dropped my pants and squatted to make my own deposit. (laughs) It's just the the next, like, 139 pages (laughs) are just all all shit. shit. (laughs) And then it came out of my butt. (laughs) 
A few moments, my thoughts lazily drifted back to the old man in the yard. There was something definitely odd, and my subconscious was screaming that something was out of place. Yeah, he's watching you take a shit. <laughs> That's the difference. With rapidly rising horror, my mind clicked the pieces into place. Though the old man was standing near a bright light, he didn't cast a shadow. The possibility it could have been an optical illusion vanished when I suddenly saw his shadowless feet inches away through the gaps under the toilet door. I was almost thankful I was squatting with my pants down, since I emptied my bowels simultaneously with my lungs emptying a scream through the other end. I <laughs> scream shit. <laughs> yeah. I jumped up and pulled my pants up as I backed to the back as oh, I backed up to the back wall. It's gonna be gross. Yeah, like you, you didn't <laughs> fucking wipe. You didn't wipe. <laughs> <laughs> shit pants. <laughs> we now know the narrator carries on the rest of the story. Shit pants. <laughs> Who shit my pants? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> uh, from my now standing position, I had lost sight of what was under the door. With no shadow, I could not tell if it was still waiting there. My mind furiously ran through what scarce options I had. I realized I didn't have much of a choice of an escape, uh, but to escape this stall. That flimsy door would provide no protection for me, and there was certainly nothing left of my dignity. If I was to die, I decided it wouldn't be with this, wouldn't be in this literal shithole. I peeked under the door, but couldn't see anything on either side. Deciding it was now or never, I kicked open the door to nothing but an empty courtyard. I rushed out, but could see no sign of the old man. Nothing but the incessant sound of crickets. It was then I made the fatal mistake of looking at the stall I had just escaped from. There was shit everywhere. <laughs> it was Bob Sagan. He was pissed. <laughs> he was there. That dreaded, white-haired, and bony body, standing where I was a mere, a, f a mere seconds ago. For the second time that night, I was thankful, as I had nothing left to brown my pants, as I let out another scream. Except for your butt cheeks. They're still covered <laughs> in shit, because you didn't wipe. Uh, question for you. Do you... <laughs> Do you stand up when you wipe, or do you remain seated? I kind of lean. Okay. But I your, your cheeks stay on the seat. Like, you're not, like, like fully standing and then wiping. Or My cheeks kind of leave the seat. Okay, okay. A little bit. Apparently. Not all the way. There are people who, who do both, and people are unaware that any other option other than the option they know... Oh exists. no, there are so many ways to shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> I I once heard that someone uh, would roll toilet paper into their hand and then poop into their hand and then crumple, what the crumple, fuck? It, crumple it with the toilet paper and drop it into the toilet and that's what you were supposed to do. And I was just like, who taught you how to shit? <laughs> because that is gross. No wonder why you have to wash your hands so many times. <laughs> Stop shitting in my house. <laughs> Get <Yeah>. out. 
Um, yeah, man. Go take a shower. <laughs> Wash your fucking hands. Now running on pure instinct, I sprinted back to the beach like I was being chased by demons. Please don't say that. <laughs> for, for all I knew, I actually was. No, no, you weren't. You were, it was a ghost. <laughs> Stick with the ghost narrative. Maybe. They were never demons. <laughs> demons were never involved. Making it back to the camp, I spent the next few hours wide awake, crouching and staring at the trail. Taking another shit. I was ready to wake everyone at the merest sign of the old man. When morning finally broke, my campmates lazily woke and wondered why I looked like death itself. I was too afraid to tell them what I saw, and simply explained it that I was struck with insomnia all night. Nothing as eventful happened for the remainder of the trip, but I had to share my experience with our local tour guide on the last day. I had to know the truth. When I finished my story, he only looked gravely at me. He looked gravely at me and just asked one question. Did you see his face? I think they're in China. It's more like, do you see a face? They're in Vietnam. <laughs> but yes. Do you see face? <laughs> do, do, do you see, see face? Do you see his face? He explained that in Vietnam, lonely ghosts often haunt sites where travelers can be found. Those who see the, their faces are doomed to a grisly, gruesome death in the near future. So some, um, what's the name of that movie? Final Destination. That's where, like, they see their death and then have to go and avoid it. Oh, final, yeah, Final Destination is all about pre, yeah. um, predestination, thinking, uh, seeing the end before it, uh, before it comes. But, I mean, seeing that it's coming is almost the same as seeing it. This, for me, is more like Juwan, like the grudge. Okay. Like, for me, it's like, if you see this fucking spirit, hope you don't make eye contact with it, because yeah. it will fuck you. Yeah. You are in its presence, therefore, you are fucks. <laughs> and, like, you can't leave. Mm -hmm. You can try to go home. Juwan will follow you home. You stepped into its presence, it's, you're fucking dead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's done for. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah, good good luck, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's almost... It's been almost two months since that fateful encounter. To this day, I still don't know if I really saw its face. It's a blur that still haunts me, and I'm not sure I want to know. Maybe there are some things in life that are better left unknown. I think I am already cursed enough. So that's the end of part one. Um, and I think that might have been like... Um, a Curious Mind is a Terrible Curse. Like, that might have been like the both the title of the series and a precursor to the first, like, intro. Yeah. Um, looking at the title of the second part, this might be a catalog of experiences. Which I think would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Multiple narrators? Well, I'm thinking same narrator, weird life. Oh, okay, okay. Um, which would be cool. Um, the second part is called Gurgles and Bugman. And uh, those are probably just nicknames for horrifying looking spirits. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like, oh, this guy drowned in the pond. I call him Gurgles. He fucking sits down near the pond and fucking bitches about swimming lessons all day. Yeah. Whereas Bugman, Bugman you don't want to see. Bugman's fucking weird. He died in the attic with all the spiders, so ever since then he's been swinging around by his genitals thinking he could he could <laughs> He can rule the world, yeah. Like a spider. Uh you don't want to you don't want to see Bugman. <laughs> uh but Gurgles, Gurgles is fine. Uh yeah. he'll just dr- he'll just drown you. Just don't get him though. started, yeah. He'll drown you though. So don't get in the water with him. He's he's a sore loser. Um Anyway, this is part two, Gurgles and Bugman. After my last experience, my parents reminded me of another story from my childhood. Thanks, Mom! When you're five, your mind lacks the experience to make informed judgments or connect things which aren't obvious. Over the years, the details get fuzzy and forgotten. Speaking with my parents the other day, they cleared the cobwebs burying this story. I remember now, much too clearly, the story of Gurgles and Bugman. I'd just started kindergarten that year, everyone's a friend when you're five, so I had no shortage of classmates. But coming from a poor family, I didn't get to see much of them outside of school. My parents spent all their waking hours trying to make ends meet, and didn't have time to ferry me from house to house. I spent my early years mostly keeping to myself playing with the random assortment of knick knacks from the shelf in my room. Being short of money gave my family a habit of hoarding, so they hated to throw anything out. One particular item on the shelf was a small, old-fashioned TV set, a wooden veneer box about two feet wide by a foot tall. It had a curved glass screen that took up half the front panel. Beside the screen was a large chrome dial used to switch channels. At the top sat an antenna formed by two terribly twisted wires. When my boredom made me turn it on, I'd usually just get static and snow on that glowing black and white screen. I'd twist the heavy clicking dial, hoping to pick up some local broadcasts. Mostly it would be some ghostly images and incoherent sound fragments, but one channel was always crystal clear. It was the Gurgles and Bugman show. Gurgles was a clown, but not a common one. He wore a thin black suit that draped his tall skinny body with a matching tie and oversized novelty clown shoes to complete his distinctive outfit. His pupils were completely black, like polished ebony marbles with no trace of white around them black face paint around those eyes and across his cheeks and mouth made him look like a manic grinning skeleton it was only the top crop of curly hair sprouting off the sides of his head that gave him a more human look as much as gurgles freaked me out bugman scared me more he was short and round like a hunchback dwarf with a dark cape He had prosthetics covering his eyes to make him look like a fly, and a mouth that was rotated 90 degrees and opened from side to side. I mean, you were pretty close on the analysis of the two. Um, 
you know, obviously... Creepy clown and fly man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah, you I mean, know, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Y- you were like, oh... Some asshole. Some asshole and a, a, a bug. <laughs> and a bug guy. <laughs> yeah, like some asshole bitches about swimming. <laughs> I like, mean, oh, that's, sorry, that's, it was a fucking clown. Sorry, it's a clown time. instead. Yeah. No, you're right. The show itself was like candid camera with pranks played on unsuspecting people. It would always start with gurgles and bug man hidden away at someone's <laughs> home. <laughs> Could you just imagine a clown? That's a, that's a, clown a great walking show. In, a clown walking in and just punching you in the face and being like, "We're on TV!" <laughs> and then like a bug like drops from the ceiling, but it's like Danny DeVito. Yeah, and he's just like, "And I'm a bug." <laughs> I'd watch that. Yeah, you you like you look at it and you're like, "Wow." True TV really lost their budget, didn't they? <laughs> fucking, fucking COVID nineteen ripping the money out of everybody's Girl pockets. and Bugman. Oh, I'd watch that. Yeah, probably. I, I'd watch it as much as I watched. Uh, what's the one? South, South something tell. There's like a toe show that they did for a while. I'd watch just as many episodes of Gurgles and Bugman. <laughs> Hell yeah. Let me describe this. Which one. is like seven. <laughs> It would always start with Gurgles and Bugman hidden away at someone's home. Gurgles would face the camera, staring at you, his bony finger touching his lips. I'm doing a little shh noise. When the unsuspecting star of the show came into view, a laugh track would begin to play. You would see them go about their nightly routines, oblivious to the conspiracy that Gurgles and Bugman had involved us in. We'd see them making dinner or their lounge watching TV with their family or quietly doing homework, then watch as Gurgles and Bugmen stole their pen or moved their glass or made things disappear behind their backs. The camera angles would change as Gurgles and Bugman shifted their hiding place from the dark corners of the room to the cupboards to the ceiling or under the furniture, all the while looking back at you and winking. The closer they got, the louder and more laughter from the soundtrack. This sounds fucking terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't watch this. In my head, it's more like it's always sunny, but like yeah, they're, they're but, in but your in house. Costumes, yeah. They're in your house. Um, that's hilarious. Um, I like walk upstairs and like my sandwich is half eaten and Charlie's like across. Charlie Day is like across the yeah. room, just going. I was hungry for a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Had to gurgle on some mayonnaise. Had to gurgle. <laughs> Danny DeVito as Bugman. Hey, I'm Bugman. That's just great. Eventually, when everyone went to sleep, a victim would be chosen for their prank. Waiting in the closet or under the bed, once their victim fell asleep, Bugman would crawl out and gently climb in be- bed beside them. His jaw would open sideways and out would come a sharp straw that he would stick into the person's neck. He's fucking feeding on yeah. them. This always paralyzed their victims, because sometimes you could see them struggle if they woke and saw Gurgles and Bugman on top of them. The laugh track would then be extra loud and uproarious those few times the victims awoke. Gurgles would make faces at the camera while the audience laughed, and Bugman would use his straw to drink from the person's neck. When the victims stopped struggling after a few minutes and the laughter would turn to claps and cheering. With Bugman finished, Gurgles' face 
would fill the whole screen with his impossibly wide, sharp-toothed grin, and then he'd whisper, The way those all-black eyes pierced through the screen always gave me chills. I hated the show, but would be always too afraid to go near the TV while it was running. One day, the TV mysteriously disappeared from my room. My parents told my five-year-old self that they sold it to pay some bills, and I accepted that without question. I was actually kind of glad that it was gone. But yesterday, when I asked them again about the TV, they exchanged nervous glances. Then they filled in some missing gaps from my childhood. Halfway through the year, Derek, a classmate I didn't know very well, died from horrific circumstances. He was murdered in his bed with a stab wound to the neck. No evidence of a break-in was ever found, so his distraught parents were taken into custody as the primary suspects, and they denied all allegations against them. At the time, Mrs. Nolan, my teacher, told our class I'd apparently explained to her that Derek couldn't be dead because I saw him and his family on the Gurgles and Bugman show the day before. When Mrs. Nolan mentioned to my parents what I'd said, they'd had immediately taken the TV from my room, driven to a junkyard, and had it burnt to nothing but ashes and molten metal. That TV was in my room because it had always been broken. It was never plugged in the whole time it sat on my shelf. Whatever I saw on that screen wasn't from a station. So that's the story of Gurgles and Bugman. But I'm not sure if that's really the end, though. After all, do Gurgles and Bugman still perform their nightly show for some unsuspecting viewer somewhere in this world? And if so, who will be their next star? That was great. Yeah, this show... That was terrifying. Or the, this, uh... This story is like odd is hitting very oddly close to home. Um, I've been spending a lot of time during the quarantine at my parents' house. Yeah. So I'm sleeping in the basement, and I've actually had quite a few fucking nightmares that like, you know, related to the grudge or other other shit. And this story is gonna fuck me <laughs> up. Nah, for me, this this almost sits in like a, um, for some reason, when I imagine Gurgles, I just imagine, like, Bendy from Bendy and the Ink Machine, and then I'm just immediately not scared anymore. That's fair, that's <laughs> Because fair. I know when, I, I don't know. I feel like the way it's described, I don't know. I guess my mind for Gurgles would go somewhere like the Terrifier. Yeah. If you've seen that clown before. But but something about Bugman just doesn't scare me that much. Um, yeah, like the fact that he's actually sucking blood is like, oh, okay, you know, we've all I'm, been bitten I mean, by bugs yeah, before. Yeah, I mean, 
there is something very dastardly and sinister about their whole approach and how the camera angles didn't make sense, like from under the couch and in a cupboard and shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really liked that. Because then it's just saying... I mean, it, it it really makes it seem like... A supernatural force. Well, the, the story makes it seem like it's taken from the perspective of a five-year... Like, places a five-year-old could hide. That would be awesome. You know, and then, like, you get into the knife wound, and it's like, well, well, like, you know, it's almost like, did, did these images come from your head? Dude, are you saying that you, you are ruling that the narrator might be a murderer of some kind? I, that, that's where my head goes. That's awesome. You know, like, I hadn't even thought that. Yeah, that's, and, and it's almost in like, um. I, I don't want to use the word schizophrenic because that's, you know, that's just an easy cop-out. But, like, a, a mental illness where, like, they think they're watching a TV and they're not. And, like... I mean, that, for me, made me think of uh, Candle Cove. I've never seen that. Ah. Candle Cove is the OG creepypasta story about someone saying they're watching something, everyone uh. agreeing, saying we all watched this when we were kids, and then someone saying, that didn't exist. My brother used okay. to talk about it all the time, oh, but all yes, we yes, ever yes, did yes. was sit and stare at a TV with static. We've talked about that before on other episodes. It's because it's one of the most popular creepypasta yeah. stories of all time. Yeah. You know, it, it was adapted into a, a series, a TV show, you know, like, the the... The concept was not new to me, but mm-hmm. but it was what the show was <clears throat> that is, I would say, scarier than Candle Cove. Yeah. Something yeah. about a live clown will just never sit well with me. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't fuck with that. That's fair. I, see, I've never had the clown thing, and, like, I was actually talking to somebody about this earlier today. Like, I've never had a fear of spiders, either. Like, there's just certain fears that people have that I'm just like, sure, whatever, you know, like, so clowns, like, I I couldn't, I couldn't give two shits. I know when I was little, I was definitely afraid of spiders, but not anymore. That's fair. Uh, Part of that might be the fact that, like, my dad used to dress up as, like, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, so, like, I got (laughs) used to, like outfits and uniforms sure for you know when i was in alabama um so like clown was kind of just on that list of like oh that could be my daddy someday you know like yeah silly shit Mm -hmm. um nah man i just i never i never liked clowns i it's one thing that'll stick with me too because there's Mm -hmm. just like now i know that like like Gacy, you know, like some people, some people do see the dark side of it and totally embrace it. Yeah. So it's like, I don't need like Terrifier to necessarily overdo it like, like that film does. But like at the end of the day, I wouldn't want to be in that situation simply because of the way that guy looks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's enough for me. That's enough Mm -hmm. for me to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. Um, this is uh, part three. (laughs) Reality is creepier than fiction. I don't don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Well, it starts off, reality can be creepier than fiction. Look at you. Uh, What's truly terrifying aren't the things that go bump in the night, but it's the macabre twists of fate in life. Am I saying that word correctly? I believe so. Okay. Uh, Especially when they get more horrifying 
the deeper you pry into them. Ah. Uh. Such as the story of old Aunt Mary. Mary wasn't my aunt, uh, but a friend of mine's. He told me this story since I've shared my own childhood tale of Gurgles and Bugman. Uh, as it's a personal family matter, the names have been changed to protect their privacy. Wait, hold on. So, this narrator yeah. doesn't remember anything that happened about Gurgles and Bugman. Right. Finds out from their parents at, you know, I'm just assuming mid to late 30s. Uh, actually, probably a little say 20s, younger than that. 20s, yeah, 20s. like if you're if you're traveling to Vietnam to do that type of hiking, probably 20s younger. 20s to 30s. Um, and then you're telling people about it? Like Reddit. I think the story is being told as like a, I tell stories on Reddit type of narrative. Okay, fair enough. You gotta remember where we found the story, the yeah, source yeah. of the story. Yeah, and, they, and it's, that is the target market. It's its existence is is Reddit. This this is a guy. I'm telling stories. Yeah, this and is like, a guy telling stories. Tell about a guy who tells stories. Yes. That's like super inception. But it's the meta. That's the meta yeah. of it. Is, yeah. is this author is writing this, and we're following along as if this is happening to mm -hmm. the author. Uh, my aunt Mary was the eldest of four children. She was unmarried for the first 40-odd years of her life, uh, so she was always spoiling her nieces and nephews with indulgent gifts. That's secretly where I hope to be, where my oh, sisters that's, that's have kids, I'm and I'm like, <laughs> yep, no thank you, I will spoil them, silly. Go look at my car. <laughs> uh, she was everyone's favorite aunt. However, deep down... She was very lonely, always being the spinster while everyone around her got married with children took while everyone around her got married with children took a mental toll on her. That is a run on sentence. That is just a sentence. <laughs> uh, when both her parents eventually died, they left a sprawling house for her inheritance. Nice. Uh, but the void in her life became as cavernous as the empty rooms of her mansion. Then fill the rooms. Why would the, the the grandparents give the house to the only one that didn't have kids? That doesn't... Shitty grandparents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, shortly after her 46th birthday, she surprised everyone by announcing sh her sudden wedding to Stanley... Stanley. A man she'd known for only two months. Hey, when you know, you know. See, but my head goes to the the first Stanley that popped in my head was uh, from Golden Girls. The the tall lady uh, had divorced a man named Stanley, and yeah. he left her for a younger girl. So I'm like, oh, nice. this is this is the <laughs> this flight is attendant that you know from from Golden Girls. Son of a bitch. Uh, it was clear though. They were deeply in love with each other. He was only slightly younger, 39 years old, but as charming, fit, and generous a soul as Mary was. Whilst no one knew much about Stanley, they all loved and welcomed him to the family. They were also secretly relieved that Mary had found happiness after all those years of solitude. Oh, excuse me. A month after the wedding, they took a honeymoon of a lifetime, spending a year 
to travel across the world. Every few weeks, a postcard would arrive from various exotic locations, exclaiming how much fun they were having. Mary's fucking dead. Everything <laughs> seemed perfect until the couple returned from their trip. Oh, never mind. <laughs> living, living together at the mansion, Mary started to change. She stopped sleeping in the same bed as Stanley, then insisted that they have separate rooms. Before long, she was claiming to hear strange noises throughout the house, her name being called out during the night, furious scratching noises echoing in the hallways, or mournful wails that seemed to come from the walls themselves. Fuck. The more Stanley tried to comfort her, the more terrified she would become. She would yell and scream at him to stay away and don't touch me. She would spend days barricading herself in a room, crying and babbling and slowly going insane from the filth that would accumulate in the mental isolation. Eventually, the family got her to a psychiatrist who diagnosed her with a type of paranoid schizophrenia known as Capgras syndrome. It's a rare condition where the victim believes that someone close has been replaced with an identical imposter. She claimed that Stanley was not her husband, but something that looked and acted and pretended to be Stanley. Her family was faced with the difficult choice of either committing Mary to a mental institution to get the care she needed or have her sedated and looked after at home. They chose to keep her sedated. Throughout all this time, Stanley was clearly distraught, but still loved Mary with all his heart, never wavered in caring for her at the, at the bedside, feeding her, talking to her as a loving husband. Only the following year, the family spent a lot of time getting to know Stanley better, but as they took turns caring for Mary and felt incredibly fortunate that he was around. I actually had a buddy who had a similar situation to this. Yeah. Um, it was a guy I worked with, and he was, I want to say he was in his late 30s, like 37, 39, kind of in that range. Um, and he had gotten married, you know, probably late 20s. And then in their early 30s, as he had been married to her for, you know, five or six years, she developed some type of condition that was, you know, it was a genetic condition where she essentially, like, dropped to, like, a non-functioning type human. Oh, where, shit. You know, like, she wasn't a vegetable by any means, but, like, yeah. couldn't hold a conversation, couldn't really go out in public by herself, you know, like was using the bathroom correctly, but that was about the best part of that situation. Um, and he stuck That's with crazy. it. Like, he had been with her for years. He Ooh. would tell me stories and be like, man, I haven't been late in years. You know, like, I can't... I can't ask her to be with me sexually, like, physically, right. in the state that she's in. Right. And I can't, you know, have the heart to, 
leave her in the state that she's in. Like, I wouldn't do that to her family. I love her, and I, I married this woman. And, like, he would tell me stories That's of, like, life, like, 10 years ago, like, she was wild and, like, did this and that. And, like, now he's he's literally a caretaker. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures on, on Facebook, but him and I went to a Metallica concert. And I posted the shit out of that because that was like a bucket list thing for me. Yeah. Um, so like you can see like kind of the age of that, the the gentleman based on that. Like it's it's a guy that I would go to a Metallica concert with. Yeah. Like that's how close him and I were. And he was just like, yeah, man, I was married to her for like five, six years. And then this thing happened. And like, you know, like this, it is what it is what ended up happening he's I mean as far as I'm aware he's still with her you know uh, I stopped working with him about a year and a half ago um, and you know we touch base from time to time but he actually he, he was uh, whether he sold or forwarded uh, marijuana to me for a long time <laughs> nice you know I'm, I'm pretty sure he sold it to me cause he it was it was pretty fucking high but it was super convenient and I was like whatever man like I'll take it you know it's still a precarious position for someone to be put in yeah um i don't what i don't like is that and i and i say this um i enjoy it from a fictional standpoint but i i worry for the narrator is that um the the whole uh plateau the whole narrative we've been going with so far is that uh i learned a truth and it and it was awful mm -hmm. <laughs> and the truth here is probably going to be like this guy really was a different person and he was controlling her and he was gaslighting the shit out of her yeah. and they convinced her that she had a disease and lived a terrible prison life for the yeah. you know for under, the rest under of her under sedation right yeah that's a nightmare yeah <laughs> so it was a total shock when they arrived at the house one day to be greeted by a squad of police cars. Uh, the front door was plastered with police tape and they were not allowed to enter. After proving they were related to the occupants, the officer in charge relayed what happened. That morning, Aunt Mary's body was found at the base of an ocean cliff about a half hour's drive away. A passing jogger had seen her car drive right up to the edge of the cliff and a woman pulling a body from the backseat of the car. After calling the police, he then witnessed Mary stabbing a male body several times with a large kitchen knife. She then rolled the body off the cliff into the waters below and started to laugh uncontrollably <laughs> for minutes on end. When the police arrived, she had simply turned and smiled, and then jumped off the cliff to her death. They managed to recover her body, but no trace of Stanley's was found. In all likelihood, it was already washed out to sea. The license plate of the car led them back to the house, where the investigation was now focused. They found some spat-out medication near Mary's bed and a broken lamp on the floor with blood splattered on the walls. Mary had pretended to take her pills 
then knocked Stanley out with the bedside lamp while his head was turned. She then had dragged the unconscious and bleeding body to the kitchen where she stabbed Stanley with a knife before dragging him to the car and driving to the cliff. However, it was what they found next that puts a chill through my bones. In searching the house, the police uncovered a secret cellar under a large rug. Upon opening it, they were greeted with the anguished faces of a deceased corpse on the steps, clawing at the cellar door. The room was covered in the stench of dried human waste and deep gouges in the woodwork where someone had desperately tried to scratch their way out of this prison. When the DNA analysis and dental records came back, the corpse was a 99% match with Stanley. He'd been dead for months, most likely of starvation. His long fingernails were broken and scratched from clawing in his futile attempt to get out. Stanley was the thing that went bump in the night. It was his pleas and desperate attempts to escape that echoed through the halls of the mansion at night. But solving that mystery created a deeper one. Who then was the person caring for Mary, spending time with her family, and who ultimately was murdered and thrown off a cliff? If Stanley was already dead, was it a, a twin brother, a doppelganger? Whatever it was, Aunt Mary took that secret with her to her grave. What haunts me the most, though, is the thought that maybe she was perfectly sane throughout all of it, and that the world itself was truly crazy. Reality is, indeed, creepier than fiction. And thank you, that was our episode of uh, Unsolved Mysteries here tonight. Um, I'm getting that vibe. I'm yeah. getting that vibe. This yeah. guy this guy is just interested in telling fun short stories of how people have essentially gone looking for knowledge and have been very disturbed by the yeah. truth that they find there. It's some right. very Unsolved Mysteries type of shit. And I'm I'm into it. I think it's good. I think it, yeah, that story I, that story was lot. awesome. That story was cool. It's it's taking something you understand and twisting it. And I don't care that that right now there isn't like a thorough narrative, but I feel like something is going to be established oh, at yeah. some point. Yeah. I just hope to fuck that it stays away from demons. I mean, foreshadowing is sometimes uh, a clue <laughs> and sometimes it's a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's very clearly, like, first story ghosts, second story, uh, like, night paralysis boogeymen, uh, last story was doppelganger changeling type of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how many weird tales this person can tell before we're like, ah, these all suck. Yeah. Because <laughs> right yeah. now they're very good. Mm-hmm. 
part four, pranks. They they do seem... Jackass. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and I'm here to read this story. Uh, they do seem a little bit shorter than what I would like. Like, in um, terms of... That first one had some length. The, yeah. the, the last two were pretty quick. Um, I don't have any type of page counts listed, so every every mm. story is a, is yeah, a wild too. card. Um, and I'm sure there will they're be... They're not terrible lengths. Yeah, like I'm sure there will be a, 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 a consultation and, and tie together. At some point. I hope so. Um, yeah. uh, uh, like, news flash to the audience. It's like 150 pages. Yeah. We're trying to do this... Well, we're trying to do this in three episodes. <coughs> mm-hmm. So we're going to try to tackle this in thirds. And um, I sure fucking hope, yeah. hope that there's a carryover narrative between the episodes. I'm sure the last one is going to end up being, you know, hey, we, we were distracted a little bit the last two, so we're going to hop right into it. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like this is the type of series where it's going to do nothing but ask questions. Yeah. I'm kind of okay with that. I'm if it ends on a question, Twilight I'm Zone still is okay with that. Questions, man. Yeah, absolutely. There's I nothing wrong with any of those narratives. I'd rather have nothing but questions than the wrong answers. Than the wrong answers. I you was know. just going to say that. Part 4, pranks. Hi, I'm Kenny Rogers. <laughs> and this is Jackers. I'm starting to think I have spooky friends. After the story of Aunt Mary, it reminded another of the following experiences that he had. I don't know if those two stories are related, but they're certainly connected by their strangeness. The names have been changed to provide some privacy. Where am I? Each and every day, we make thousands of myriad decisions affecting our lives. Most of them are trivial, even seemingly important decisions get evened out over the course of a lifetime. Good things come from bad choices, and vice versa. Once in a while, though, we are faced with a real inflection point, a moment where our very fate is condensed into a simple yes or no decision, a fight or flight response, a single flip of a coin on which your life changes. Um, Stephen King calls those uh, watershed moments, and I always liked that terminology. I've known Brad... Brad. You loved Brad. (laughs) And then you totaled him. I've known Brad now for a couple of years. He's the quiet, serious type. A radical contrast to the wild, brash teenager he was many summers ago. Mark and Jason were two of his best friends, and he raised hell with them back then. They were so close that everyone referred to them as the Three Musketeers. After graduating from high school in 1996, they suddenly found themselves with more free time than they knew what to do with, so they spent it challenging each other to dares. They just had one simple rule. Whatever was chosen, they all had to do it. All for one and one for all. Which resulted in all three of them streaking naked through nursing homes, shoving their mouths with entire packets of cigarettes at once and lighting them, doing the cinnamon challenge while rip-roaring drunk. 
The best stunt they pulled was telling some road construction workers that guys dressed as policemen were coming to prank them. They followed up by calling the police to report the pranksters dressed as road workers were going to close down a street. The resulting hour of chaos earned the musketeers an overnight stay behind bars. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that is a pretty good one. That moment should have been their wake-up call to reconsider what they were doing with their lives, but Jason had one more dare in mind. Just outside of town was a forested area where hikers would occasionally pass through, spanning across a wide river through a uh, former railway bridge that was converted for walking. Lacking any lighting, if you stood in the middle on a moonless night, both ends would be so shrouded in darkness that the bridge would seem to stretch to eternity. Which is why it was a popular place for suicides, and a reputed place to be one of the most haunted around. A new moon was approaching, and Jason wanted a midnight visit to prove that they hadn't lost their nerve for adventure. Though Mark had some reservations, Brad readily agreed. All for one and one for all, so they all committed to go. Getting to the bridge was via a lone stretch of road that wound its way through the forested hills. With Jason at the wheel, they passed the time by sharing ghost stories to psych each other out. So when they spotted a lone figure ahead in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, their nervous laughter turned to sudden dread. With tales of phantom hitchhikers fresh in their minds, Jason pushed down on the accelerator without waiting for debate, and there was no way he was stopping for a stranger that night. The last they saw of the unkempt figure was it limping and waving as it diminished rapidly into the distance. Most likely a homeless vagrant, they rationalized. There were some war veterans that came back with post-traumatic stress disorder who failed to readjust with society and made the woods their home. Though they were more freaked out than they would like to admit, stubborn pride wouldn't let them chicken out. They stopped the car in an empty tourist parking area near the bridge. It was a cool night, but their chills were more from the fear in their minds than the air around them. Grabbing their only flashlight, they trekked towards the bridge itself. By the time they got to the center, it was clear that they were alone. There were no lonely souls looking to end their lives that night. From where they stood, the end of the bridge did indeed seem to disappear to infinite darkness beyond. The first few minutes pass with the sound of water lapping at the base of the bridge. They waited and strained to hear any sounds of ghosts from people who had jumped to their deaths below. Nothing. Several more minutes pass in uneventful silence. Eventually, they relax and start their usual playful banter, taking the edge off their nerves. They joke about the hitchhiker and how he probably wanted a lift to the bridge so he could jump. More minutes pass. Their adrenaline rush has faded to tedium and boredom. Well, we did your lame-ass dare, Jason, Mark boasted happily. You lose. You owe us 20 bucks each. Yeah, yeah, dude. I know you're busting to get that $20 blowjob, Jason retorted. Nah, he's itching for 20 $1 blowjobs when that homeless dude shows up, taunted Brad. 
Well, you both can just blow. Shh! Jason suddenly hissed. Can you hear that? It sounded like someone was calling their names from the opposite side of the bridge they entered from. Jason! Where are you? The faint voice carried in the air. Mark got up and started to edge back in the direction of the car. I think we should head back and leave now. It called my name, said Jason. No one knows we're here. We should check it out. Brad, you there? The ghostly voice continued. Okay, that can't be coincidence, said Brad. Someone we know might be looking for us. We should check it out. You're outvoted, Mark, argued Jason. Besides, I have the car keys, so you're not going anywhere. Let's go. They all headed towards the other bridge exit. Hello? Who's there? Jason yelled, but no answer. You know, there are some ghosts that lure you into, stammered Mark. Just shut up for a moment, Mark. You're not helping, Jason interrupted. Reaching the other side of the bridge, they found no sign of any presence but themselves. Continuing their journey along the trail, the flashlight casted looming shadows across the trees. There's no one here, Brad whispered. I agree with Mark now. I think we should head back. All right, guess it's my turn to be outvoted, Jason replied as he turned around with his torch. Hey, where's Mark? He's right beside me, Brad spun around, but Mark was not there. He was there a moment ago, I swear. Mark, Jason yelled. Are you pissing behind a tree? No response. He might have chickened out and gone back to the car, Brad guessed. Help, came the phantom voice, seemingly from behind them. It sounded vaguely like Mark's. Where are you, dude? This isn't funny, shouted Jason. Dead silence. After several more minutes of waiting and searching, Jason had enough. Mark, we're heading back to the car. We'll meet you there, he yelled. They made their way back across the bridge to the car park. Mark wasn't there either. So they waited in the car until sunrise. Very worried by this point, Jason and Brad headed back across the bridge to look for Mark with the help of the early morning light. With no luck in finding Mark and fast running out of options, Jason and Brad decided to head back into town to get help. On the drive back, they spot a figure lying on the ground besides the road. It was the hitchhiker. Daylight gives everyone more courage, enough for Jason to stop the car and help this time, and approaching the body, they found to their surprise that it was Mark. With his clothes torn and filthy and his face stubbled as if he hadn't shaved in days, he was unconscious and almost unrecognizable. They drove him straight to the hospital. He was so dehydrated that he was close to death, and when he finally recovered, they asked him what happened. That night, Mark had followed them across the bridge and along the trail. He had only glanced back towards the bridge for a moment, but when he turned around, he was alone. He concluded that Brad and Jason were pranking him and hiding behind some trees. He yelled out for Jason and Brad, but got no response, and he checked around the trees, but he couldn't see anything. Suddenly, he heard the rustling of approaching footsteps, and relieved, he followed the sound, but saw that no one was there. 
Now completely disoriented, freaked out, alone in the dark, he cried for help. He would hear the footsteps approach, but he would never see who was making them. He tried to outrun them, but sprained his ankle and bruised himself running into thick branches. For three days, the footsteps tormented him until he had stumbled onto the road one night. He had limped along, wishing for a car to pass by and take him home, and he was overjoyed when he saw the lights of an approaching car, even more so when he recognized it to be Jason's. But that soon turned to anger and frustration as he watched it accelerate straight past him without a hint of acknowledgement. He passed out alongside the road soon thereafter and woke up in a hospital bed. The three musketeers disbanded shortly after that. To this day, Mark believes that Jason and Brad had abandoned him to the forest for laughs for three days. It was a prank he will not forgive them for. Jason also thinks it's a prank, but by Mark in return for being outvoted on the bridge. Mark must have spent that morning walking back to the road while Jason and Brad were worried sick and looking for him on the bridge. As for Brad, he has a different theory. That night in the car, they were caught up in a wrinkle in time. Time may not be a straight line, as we think it to be. Perhaps like a great river, it has whirls and eddies which loop back seamlessly and sweep some random few caught in the tide. Maybe that night, the ghosts they heard were the echoes of Mark caught in those swirls. Perhaps more frighteningly, at those particular suicide spots, the victims themselves never chose to die. Fate flipped a coin, and the location chose them. If not for a fateful decision to stop the car, Mark might also have become another victim. In the end, maybe time itself is the prankster that's playing tricks on us all. It's very dum 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 yeah. like at the end it's like and that is the story. Like I don't hate it, but it's very like for me this feels commercial. Yeah. <laughs> like it feels like I am reading Twilight Zone. <laughs> oh for sure. Um it's like did and here's the weird tom fuckery I found out about this week. Except Rod Serling like is on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so far the only tie between any of them is just hey, this is, you know, a random thing for me, a random thing for my friend, like a, a different, unrelated friend. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find, like, a connection, but I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to. I'm also cool with it just being yeah, like, random stories of this guy cataloging I mean, his adventures. That's, there's no problem with that. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have, you know, dozens if not hundreds of hours into Twilight Zone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like... I do. Yeah. Into many of those popular storytelling, like, short story mm -hmm. kinds of narratives. Um, the, the, the thing that this story is doing in particularly well um, uh, is the fact that it knows just how much detail to give you and just when to stop. Yeah. Because they always get to this point where it's like, well, that's kind of fucked up, and then it resolves itself, and then it ends, and you're and you're just left with the the thing like mm -hmm. hanging there in the air because yeah. the story's over, but you're still thinking about it, mm -hmm. and it's it's always a uh, a little bit of Tom fuckery, yeah, and I'm and I like it, like I, like I said earlier, uh, all questions no answers is is preferable to bad answers. 
Agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Part ha- five. Notes. Notes. Having just shared with Brad the write-up story of his story, he's told me another that's absolutely floored me. Brad is just full of stories. It's about his cousins. Fuck. And the tragic tale of their daughter, Emily. As per usual, all names have been changed to protect their privacy. Emily was always something of a mystery to her family. Always very quiet and thoughtful. She'd never had the childhood exuberance an 11-year-old should. In school, her natural reservedness made it very difficult for her to form any friendships with other children. For the first couple years, her parents thought it might just be a phase of natural shyness. But as the years went by, they started to worry about her social awkwardness. They tried enrolling her in different classes and getting her involved in sports. Uh, They sacrificed their time and precious savings doing what they could to help her make friends. But she seemed happiest when she was alone, playing with her dolls. None of the other children wanted to play with her because they thought she was weird. Uh, And deep down, Emily's parents felt it too. Ah, honey, we got a weirdo. (laughs) There was a certain oddness to her. A mixture of adult seriousness and emotional detachment. It didn't help that the few times that Emily smoked, it would always be about events in the future. Uh, And they always seemed to come true. (laughs) Fuck that, man. (laughs) The first noticed it when Emily was six and was taken doll shopping. Uh, She paused outside the door of the doll store and said, and refused to walk in. Uh, When asked why, she replied, It's hot, Mommy, and all the faces are melted. Within that hour, an electrical fault had sparked, which burned down the premises. Emily knew when their pet dog would get hit by a car, and when they'd have to put him down. She knew the neighbor's tree would fall and collapse on their home during a fierce storm. What worried her parents the most was how certain Emily was that she'd be dead before she was 12. Jesus. I think it's less of a matter of seeing the future and more of a matter of altering it. I think, I think, and I always think this in these types of narratives, I think when you act to alter it, you are welcoming it to happen. Yeah, yeah, like like a manifestation, more than like an actual knowledgeable uh, destruction. Like like if I if I learned that I was gonna die because of rolling chairs, like something related to rolling chairs, you know, I would essentially avoid rolling chairs for for the rest of my life. But that's not to say that I'm not just somewhere someday near a rolling chair and it just fucking happens. You know, like that. Knowing that isn't going to change anything. How that happens. (laughs) It broke her parents' heart to watch her play alone with her dolls. She would talk with them about how she won't be around. And not to worry, because Mommy and Daddy will look after them. Sure enough, 
Shortly before her 12th birthday, Emily suffered a brain aneurysm that she never recovered from. She was in a coma for several days before dying in hospital with her weeping parents at her bedside. It took several weeks for her parents to pull themselves back together enough to continue with their lives. They, when they entered Emily's room for the first time since her death, they noticed a large handwritten note on the table for them. In Emily's large scrawl, it simply said, Dear Mommy and Daddy, I love you. Thank you for everything. Love, Emily. You won't get more huggies without chicken nuggies. Love, Emily. Over the next few months, they found more notes hidden throughout the house. Each would be written on a different scraps of paper, but always in her familiar blue scrawl. Under a dollhouse. Dear Mommy and Daddy, Sorry I couldn't stay longer. Don't blame yourselves. It's not your fault. Love, Emily. Don't get on that plane later this week. <laughs> Love, Emily. <laughs> I know you're thinking of going to Boca Raton. Don't. Don't do it. <laughs> Dad, you're thinking of betting uh, on that horse race? Not a good idea. <laughs> on the back wall of the closet. Dear Mom, tell Dad I miss his bedtime stories. Love, Emily. Behind cereal boxes in the pantry. Dear Dad, Mom loves you very much and worries about how hard you work. Spend more time with her. Love, Emily. In an old briefcase. Dear Mom and Dad, Sorry I didn't say I love you enough. I always have and I always will. Love, Emily. Knowing she was going to die, Emily had hidden dozens of messages for her parents to come over the years as reminders of her, saying all the things she couldn't seem to when she was alive. Each note her parents found was treasured and, and lovingly collected and stored in a heavy wooden box. But there was one note they found that seemed out of place. While it seemed to be in her handwriting, unlike the others, it was unsigned and used a blood-red ink. On it was simply written, Uncle Scott. I do want to note that it was in all caps. Mm -hmm. Puzzled, they added it to the box. At the exact moment, Uncle Scott knocked on the door to check on them. They smiled and put it down to coincidence. Until a few weeks later, when they discovered a second note in the same red ink. Bad man, again all caps. Feeling uneasy, they double-checked the locks on their doors that night. In the morning, they found their back door lock broken. It was only the chain lock, and they had secured. Uh, it was only the chain lock that that had secured, that stopped whatever intruder from getting in. A few more weeks passed, 
and they uncovered the next red ink note from behind a photo on the mantelpiece. On it was written, In my room. Curious, they went to Emily's room and searched. Since Emily's death, they had carefully cleaned and maintained it to be exactly the same as when Emily was alive. They thought they did checked in every corner for notes. They checked again under the bed and found one in red ink stuck to the mattress. Behind closed doors. Curious, they closed Emily's bedroom door. Stuck to the door was a poster of puppies that Emily had liked when they first got their dog. The rattle from the door closing loosened and dropped the poster, revealing a chilling fifth note. He will suffer. A wave of uneasiness hit Emily's parents, and they scrambled back out to the kitchen for a drink. At that moment, the doorbell rang as Scott paid his regular visit. He asked why they seemed so rattled, and was told of the note behind the door. Scott asked to see it, and went into Emily's bedroom, while her parents stood shaking in the kitchen. The door to Emily's room suddenly slammed shut with so much house the force shook. Scott's screams then filled the air, mixed with the sounds of crashing and banging. Emily's parents rushed to the room, but nothing they could do would open the door. The sound of Scott's screams became louder and more frightening, along with unearthly guttural noises, like some wild beast was in there with him. After several minutes of trying to break into the room, everything suddenly became still. Only Scott's quiet wailing could be heard as the door opened normally. He was laying in a fetal position, rocking backwards and forwards while repeating, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Scott would never speak of what happened in that room, but he later confessed to having sexually abused Emily since she was five. He threatened, he had threatened her to keep quiet, and Emily became withdrawn as a result. He was, in, he was arrested and imprisoned for his reprehensible acts. On the day he was sentenced, Emily's parents opened their box of letters to remember what Scott had deprived them of. It was then they noticed the red ink letters were torn from the same complete sheet of paper. Uncle Scott, bad man, in my room, behind closed doors, he will suffer. It's been several months since that day, and no more notes have shown up. Emily's parents found some level of comfort and closure in their grief. Until a few days ago, when they found a new one under a rug in red ink. See you soon. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, that's definitely a Twilight Zone episode right there. Yeah. Um, 
you know, because the not even the narrators are safe. You know, like death comes for everyone eventually. It's like the the daughter the daughter is not going to protect you. <laughs> She's not going to let you know what to avoid. She's just going to be like, oh, mommy and daddy are coming. <laughs> I um, I sort of have a feeling as we're progressing through the story. Oh, a feeling that the author sat down and just started writing in like a straight shot. And I can tell, like, how stoned they were based on the story. <laughs> and maybe Why it's, do you say that? I, it might be me following my own stonedness. <laughs> yes, we have been smoking throughout reading these. But I have a feeling that the author is not on, on the same loop as I am, but, like, they're also on a loop. It's like, yeah, so for this one... Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's very little good. Little girl, little girl, little girl. Ah, oh, she's, she's dead. Yep. But she, she left uh, fun She can speak little, from the grave. Fun little notes. <laughs> fun little notes. Oh, and the uncle. Yeah, he's a rapist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what, that's that's what good. started it all. That's yeah. good. Yes. Oh, fucking uncles. Rapey uncles. Fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> so that's fun. Uh, this title stands out <laughs> because it almost like, you know, just the, the use of it seems so... Yeah like liberal you know it's just like part six is called patient sigma and for me that's just like that's stepping into like fear territory like it's like oh the girl we raised in the lab she has gone sour (laughs) and now seeks revenge for how we treated her when she was little with her telekinetic powers um patient sigma you know um it's it's different Ah, first an update from Emily's family via Broad. From the previous story notes, since so many of you are asking, spoiler, when Emily's parents opened the door to Emily's room yesterday, they noticed that all the dolls had their heads (laughs) facing the door. No, that's when you walk the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And normally they face the opposite wall. Emily's favorite doll was on her bed instead of the dollhouse also staring towards the door. After Uncle Scott's incident, they quickly shut the door and stayed out. They are avoiding that room for now, and I'll provide an update in case anything else unusual happens. End of spoiler alert. (laughs) For those who didn't read that last story, we did. (laughs) Collecting scary stories is now an obsession of mine. My next victim for interrogation was Clive, not his real name, a friend of my mother's. As a former clinical psychoanalyst, he had witnessed his fair share of strange, which is also a term for vagina. (laughs) But his most unforgettable vagina is the terrifying case of patient Sigma. This is almost turning into like a pseudo-diary style, like a journal tonight it is raining and I told you a story of the creepy thing that happened in that hospital once Clive was a specialist in criminal cases probing in the minds of the most diabolical criminals to understand what creates monsters a couple years ago he received an unusual and irresistible request from the military to investigate the case of patient Sigma 
Sigma was the code name given to a particularly sensitive case which the military did not want to make public. Patient Sigma was an exemplary soldier, part of an elite special forces unit, highly trained and highly secretive. Notably, he was awarded for one particular act of heroism when he single-handedly protected 14 civilians from a raid until his squad could arrive. He was critically knocked out by a nearby mortar explosion and was clinically dead for three minutes before the medic successfully revived him. I fucking predicted this one. While he had a young family that worried about him, he was a patriotic military man with a duty to serve his country. He was keen to resume his career despite his near-death experience. After being given a clean bill of health, he reported back for duty. A few days into his training, he started to develop a chill, no matter how warm the environment. Over the weeks, he became more and more distracted until the nightmares began. At night, he would suddenly start screaming and whimpering, cowering at some unseen horrors that seemed to be haunting him. The army psychologist initially assessed it to be post-traumatic stress disorder and ordered him to be confined to his barracks for a week's rest. Five days in, his entire platoon failed to show up after reveal. The squad captain marched angrily to the barracks to find out why, upon entering the room, he was hit with full force of the gruesome sight of blood-spattered walls and half-eaten bodies Jesus strewn Christ. all over. Patient Sigma stood at the center, naked except for a coat of blood crying in agony whilst gnawing on a dismembered limb. Rushing out of the room on pure instinct, the captain wretched up his breakfast before summoning the military police. When six MPs entered the room, Sigma shook his head maniacally, yelling, No choice! They forced me! They are watching! As they moved in to subdue him, he babbled, No, no, don't come near! They are here! and backed away. After some stiff resistance, the MPs managed to secure him by their arms and legs and carry him out. One of the other MPs observed that Sigma... As Sigma was being carried out, he was struggling wildly and crying out in pain. Large animal-like bite marks appeared over his body, dripping with saliva and mixing with the blood. In his condition, it was decided that it was best to isolate patient Sigma. A small unused building on the base was converted to, make a, sh uh, to a makeshift cell that was constantly guarded. Strapped to a hospital bed, his movements were restricted and under camera observation 24 hours a day. Despite heavy interrogation, he was completely unresponsive. He just lay there, unmoving, staring at the corner of the room, his eyes constantly wet with tears. It was at this point that Clive was brought in to help find answers, and the following excerpts are notes from his journal. Tuesday, 17th of August finished reading case file for patient sigma definitely intriguing why does a good man commit such evil initial assessment is accused acute post-traumatic stress syndrome combined with hyper psychosomatic hysteria there must be more to this than meets the eye ptss rarely involves cannibalism and spontaneous bite mark wounds we'll meet patient sigma tomorrow wednesday 18th august 
patient Sigma was unresponsive to questioning or physical contact, checked his pulse to ensure Sigma was still alive, elevated heart rate detected approximately 170 beats per minute, and shallow breathing noted. Eyes appear alert and pupil dilation normal, at least can, can confirm we're not dealing with a zombie. Good thing, as I don't believe in zombies. Thursday, 19th of August. I mean, 170 beats per minute is dead. No, I've beat 170 beats per minute, and I'm not dead. But to, It's near cardiac arrest, yes. Yeah, and, and there's typically some type of either physical activity involved... Sure. Or I mean, sitting there is definitely weird. Yeah. But my resting, my resting is dangerously high, which is why I'm medicated for it. Yeah. So, um... Mine, mine was for years. Yeah, um, my doctor once told me he had someone who's elevated would reach, like, 235. Jesus Christ. And okay. That, so he, he said ever since that day, he just knows that bodies run hot sometimes, and that 170 used to be... A, a really bad number to be worried about, but it's probably closer to like 190, 185 at this point. Okay. Um, and whether he said that just to comfort me or whether that's an actual fact, yeah. you know, I, I have yet to actually look into, but um, it would not surprise me that, you know, uh, our generation or our, our human bodies have evolved shittily. <laughs> I mean, not to bring it to cocaine, but I, I'm sure... At some point over my, you know, I don't want to call it an illustrious career, but, you know. <laughs> um, my, uh, my perusal yeah, the, of substances in my nose. A certain summer <laughs> that we're, we're not going to go into detail about, I'm sure I was well past that at many points. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like... Absolutely. Patient continues to be unresponsive despite not being physically comatose. Have reviewed surveillance footage in detail. Very strange. Sigma never moves. Even more strange, Sigma does not appear to sleep. Further, he appears to talk to himself when alone. Behavior particularly active during the late night and early morning periods. Yeah, this dude just got some, like, really weird, whacked out cocaine. <laughs> yeah, man, fuck, 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 shit, fuck, fuck, shit, fuck, yeah, 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 yeah. Frustrated to find that surveillance cameras can't pick up sound, we'll need to get that fixed. Just leave a recording under his bed or something. Friday the 20th of August. Yeah. Having secretly added a microphone to the room during today's visit, Sigma is still unresponsive and has not eaten for the past few days. Muscle mass clearly deteriorating, Sigma continues to lie in the same position. He has not shifted since I've arrived. Observation confirmed with security footage. Patient, patient just stares at the same spot all day and night. Tested a hypothesis this afternoon. Stood directly in front of Sigma's vision. Sigma immediately began screaming, loud and frightening. Stepped away, and Sigma resumed catatonic state. Spent ten minutes examining corner that Sigma stares at. It's beige. Could that have a calming experience on Sigma? Will require further observation. Monday the 23rd of August. 
spent the weekend reviewing more footage and new audio. Sound quality is poor, not picking up any distinct words. Frustrated at having wasted two days of progress. Have a plan, though. We'll sneak into his cell this evening to listen in and record. Patient seems most active from 10pm onwards. Visited Sigma again this morning, no change other than eyes being noticeably more bloodshot. Tuesday, 24th of August. Wasted another night. Stupidly brought flashlight to sneak in. Sigma stopped talking on approach when he noticed the light. But I have a cunning idea. Have managed to borrow night vision goggles from contact and unit supply. State-of-the-art active infrared. Military-grade hardware. We'll be able to walk in complete darkness. Plan to observe Sigma on camera, then sneak in when he starts talking tonight. That was the last entry in Clive's journal. He abruptly resigned the following morning. Not long afterwards, a mysterious fire destroyed the makeshift cell block, incinerating everything inside, including patient Sigma. Clive had managed to sneak in that night, carefully peering into the room through his goggles. He saw the green outline of Sigma on the bed, staring at the corner. Straining, he heard fragments of Sigma's conversation with himself in between heart-wrenching sobs. Promised. Don't harm. Family. Leave Sarah. Did as you told. After a few moments, Clive realized that Patient Sigma was not talking to himself, but the corner of the room. Curiosity got the better of him, and he stretched his neck to look there too. Sticking out of the wall were three monstrous, goat-like heads, liquid dripping from their maws, talking back to Patient Sigma. Clive unconsciously gasped in horror, and the three heads snapped their attention right at him, their demonic glowing green eyes now aware of his presence. Pure terror compelled Clive to forget everything, including bladder control. He pissed himself. <laughs> and to flee the building. I fucking would too. Rushing past the door with his limited vision, he slammed into the guard on duty, tripped and knocked himself unconscious. He was also lucky to have missed splitting his head on a sharp rock by just a few inches. It didn't take much more for him to hand in his notice shortly thereafter. Even today, Clive still doesn't know what he really witnessed in the room that night, and when pressed, he reluctantly reveals this much. He suspects that there are many things waiting for us on the other side. In those fateful three minutes that Patient Sigma was dead, and finding his way back, he inadvertently brought something back with him. And he's not sure whether that something is looking for a way back, or now having escaped is looking to roam free. Wherever the truth lies, I do know this. Throughout our whole conversation, Clive never once took his eyes off the corner of the room. Some good stories, man. Yeah. Some good stories. That one had me uh, gasping quite a bit. <laughs> Gasped. <laughs> you you were you were entranced. Mm. It was a very good story. Very good story. Um I like I like beings of other dimensions and mm -hmm. shit. I like the whole after death, you know, like I even called it like I literally said yeah. going and learning what death is and then coming back and it haunting you for the rest of your life. Like that's you know 
he had uh, he had met something on the other side, and that thing said, "Hey, you're gonna be coming back, and I'm fucking hitching a ride." <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it was also a, a, another aspect of, oh, why did you look around the corner? You know, like you regret learning what you were oh, curious absolutely. for. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. <laughs> now, now he just watches every corner for the rest of his life. Yeah. I love it. It was great. Besides the disturbing story... Part 7. Oh, part 7. Memories. Memories. Besides the disturbing story of Patient Sigma, Clive also shared another strange story he was involved in. The the mysterious and sad case of Lucy. We all take our memories for granted, happy or sad. We file them away in the recesses of our mind, only to dust them off every now and then when nostalgia beckons. Some linger wistfully, some may haunt us for an eternity, but ultimately, they are our footprints in the sand, fading with us, fading with each passing tide. What few of us acknowledge is that those footprints aren't just records of our passing, they are our life. What we are is the sum total of our memories. Every decision we've made, every person that we've known, all the thoughts and dreams we've experienced with the unique patterns in the sand that let us know we have existed. Sometimes it takes a story like Lucy's to remind us just how precious that is. That was literally the Rod Serling speech at the beginning of a Twilight Zone episode. Absolutely. And now we close in on Lucy who's in her bedroom talking about how she wishes she wishes she had her sight back <laughs> Lucy had a very happy childhood growing up in a rural community her days were filled with chasing butterflies and helping her loving parents tend the farm she had an ongoing rivalry with her brother Ryan who was two years older that mellowed over the years to form the unspoken love and respect that bonds siblings together. Ryan was obsessed with traveling the world and wanted to be an adventurer like Indiana Jones. One summer when she was seven, Ryan had the idea to create a time capsule for explorers from the future to discover one day. They had spent the morning gathering an odd assortment of Coins, trinkets, family photos, and each wrote a letter to place in the box. Hey! They spent that afternoon digging and... What uh, letter did you choose? X. X! (laughs) Uh, They spent that afternoon digging a hole. Digging a hiding place for the box under the oak tree. Capping it with a large stone. To help future generations find it. They grabbed a knife from the kitchen to carve in the stone a large, crude X, X to mark the spot. You need to stop drawing X's everywhere, man. <laughs> X! Lucy remembered her parents grounding her two weeks for destroying that knife and not telling why she did it. She had agreed with Ryan that it was best for the box to say secret for others to find. Lucy attended the local school 
that was an hour's walk away. She remembered making that walk a thousand times, strolling with her brother and their neighbor Matthew. Matthew was just a few months older than Lucy, but had an easy charm that made him very likable. She had liked the way his hazel eyes would sparkle and his nose crinkle when he laughed. She loved the way he flicked his head to move his floppy brown air from covering his eyes. It was convenient that they were in the same classes, so most of their childhood so so spent most of their childhood growing up together. They spent many summer nights as teenagers lying on the ground, gazing up at the expansive night sky. They would talk for hours of other worlds and the vastness of the universe and how great it would be to explore the stars. If only they weren't so far away. But that's that's what you think they were doing. What they're really doing is touching each other's holes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna play doctor. Milking milking each other's parts. Turn your head and cough. <clears throat> she remembered that Matthew wanted more than anything to be an astronaut, and hid a jar under his bed to save up for a trip into space. She remembered helping him spend an entire week of their holidays digging up weeds until their backs ached so he could add a few dollars more to that jar. Meager as it was, it was still a few dollars closer to the stars. She remembered how the last day of that job turned into a mud ball fight, which escalated into a friendly wrestling match, and how her blood raced when Matthew pinned her to the ground, half laughing half exhausted. <laughs> the slut. She remembered their first kiss, Ooh. lying there, and how alive she felt with the smell of dirt and cut grass and sweat. If Tom Bombadil like were here, he'd be like, oh, this is awful all over again. We always read sex scenes in your stories. When they were 17, they carved their names framed with a large heart into an ancient rock, into the ancient trunk of the oak tree. She remembered wanting those days to never end. But Lucy also vividly recalled that Sunday when she was 19, when Matthew changed and started acting strangely. He avoided her and always gave vague excuses for why they couldn't spend more time together. The more she tried to talk to him, the more distant he became. Instead of coming over to watch TV, as he had, uh, as he had for as long as she could remember, he spent his nights alone in the woods. She had tried to follow him a few times, but he always seemed to know, and after weaving his way through the forest, she would lose his track and he'd disappear. For an entire week, it seemed that Matthew didn't exist. His parents could provide no explanation either. Lucy remembered crying alone each one of those nights, tormenting herself about what could have gone wrong. Then one Saturday evening, right after nightfall, Matthew just as inexplicably showed up at her doorstep. He's fuckboys, man. With the devilish grin on his face. They're oh, always yeah. there when you don't ask them, and they're... then when, they're, when you need them, they're never there. He, uh, he discovered what beer was, and... Knock, knock, knock. I'm here now. I'm back, baby. <laughs> you want 
You want talk time to me, talk together? to me, talk to me, baby. We'll spend lots of time together. A whopping 15 minutes. Good. Two minutes, 30 seconds. With a devilish grin on his face, he asked her to follow him into the woods, but refused to explain why. Come on down to the woods. Let's go to the woods. He would only say that there was something she, and only she, had to see. It's my dick! <laughs> You're the only one, babe! Come on, babe! Oh my god, it's Ja Rule. Come on, lay it on me! <laughs> Come on, babe, see my dick in the woods! <coughs> I can't do Ja Rule, I'm too high. No one else could follow. You're the only one for me! At once relieved and terrified, Lucy didn't know what to think. <laughs> she didn't remember dating Ja Rule. Uh, she recalled between her tears of joy and relief was a creeping sense of horror. Eventually, she relented un under Matthew's insistence and charm, and they left together for the woods without anyone knowing. Lucy recalled thinking that the trail seemed darker and more sinister than she had ever remembered it. She remembered how the adrenaline from her fast-beating heart amplified every sound around her. The crunching of twigs on the ground, the chirping of insects, the buzz of mosquitoes, and the flapping of birds disturbed in their nests. She remembered how tightly Matthew gripped her hand as he led her through a labyrinth of trees, and she remembered how cold and nervous he seemed. I'm finally gonna do it, I'm finally gonna fuck a girl, oh my god. Eventually, the dense foliage cleared to a wide open space in the forest. I just moved this spot, we could totally fuck here. And to a site that would forever sear into our memory. I mean, they do say you, you never forget your first. <laughs> yeah. Along the far wall of the trees, wires were strung out, upon which were hung rows of jars with delicate care. In each jar were hundreds of fireflies glowing a ghostly green in the dark. Johan, I've been making this fuck palace in the woods. Look at our night lights. <laughs> yes. Let's <laughs> fuck. <laughs> They're like candles, but better, babe. Look. <laughs> From where she was standing, Lucy could clearly make out the words. They formed, You are my universe. You're my universe. Come on, fuck me, baby. It was the second most beautiful thing Lucy had ever seen in her life. The most beautiful was the very next moment when she had turned around to see Matthew. Oh my goodness. He was on his knees, tongue out. Dick in his hand. And in his hand was a ring. A single star sapphire surrounded by a constellation of diamonds. And this is you said we need to wait till marriage, babe! Let's do it! And this is where I have to remind the entire female audience, uh, this will never happen. Also true. <laughs> like, how do you get that many fireflies in a <laughs> jar? <laughs> like... Ah, uh, you order them from Amazon. So they're fake fireflies? <laughs> oh no, they're real. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Two-day shipping. You can get anything on Amazon. 
she remembered wondering how Matthew could afford this, and noticed that the first jar of fireflies was the same jar as the one under his bed. With tears welling in her eyes, she empathetically said yes. For that night, their entire universe was the intimate space of that clearing, and they spent it making love surrounded by starlight. Lay it on me. When her family found out about the news about her engagement, they were ecstatic, though not surprised. Wait, how old is she? <laughs> uh, I think 19. Oh, okay. Not... But, I mean, she's been dating this dude since she was, you know, she's she's been with this dude since they were in elementary. 13 or something? Yeah, and they started dating real young. Okay. Though a few weeks later, they had to accelerate the wedding plans as Lucy found out she was pregnant. Though her parents were slightly embarrassed about the of prospect of having a child out of wedlock, they was more than overcome at their joy at being grandparents. Uh, during her first trimester, her parents drove her to the local hospital for her prenatal examination. There were some unusual results, uh, so she was baby. asked to stay overnight for more tests and given a bed. When she awoke that morning, her whole life was turned upside down. Flip turned upside down. She gave birth to Will Smith right then and there. And that's the story of how he <laughs> became the Prince of Bel-Air. The doctors told Lucy she, uh, she had a phantom pregnancy. That there was no child in her. False alarm, sorry, go home. Confused and distraught, she felt her world starting to collapse around her. She called her parents to pick her up, only to find their number had been disconnected. By late afternoon, she was distraught that she hadn't that they hadn't shown up to take her home. Distressed, she contacted Matthew's number, only to have a stranger pick up the phone. Now on the verge of hysteria and panic, Lucy had to be sedated for her own safety. Clive was brought in to do the psychiatric evaluation, but could find nothing wrong with Lucy. She seemed perfectly normal, considering the circumstances, and it was odd that no one picked her up from the hospital. Finding her identity card amongst her belongings, he agreed to drive her home. Arriving at the listed address, they found a derelict farmhouse where wild grass grew so high that it almost obscured the entrance. Entering the house, they found it abandoned. An entire wall had caved in and caused the roof to collapse. Years of exposure to weather rendered the house in uninhabitable. Only the strewn debris of long-gone squatters remained. Rushing to the backyard, Lucy found the oak tree still standing guard over a half-buried stone marked X. The carved heart was still there, a faint fading scar among upon the bark. On digging up the buried box, the contents were found to be almost empty. Driving to Matthew's home, his parents showed no flicker of recognition towards Lucy. They have informed them that the farmhouse next door had been abandoned for over 15 years. The family living there had a son, 
but they all died when a drunk driver lost his way and drove his truck into the side of the house, everyone killing everyone inside. When Lucy asked about Matthew, they exploded with rage and firmly asked her to leave immediately. Matthew was the name they wanted to give their son, but he was a stillborn 20 years ago. They didn't appreciate it being made a joke of. Lucy tried calling all the numbers she had in her phone, and while she knew details of their life, each and every one of them did not recognize who she was. It's as if the, the universe had abandoned her. With no further leads, Clive eventually had her committed to an asylum, where she now waits out her days. The first few years she struggled angrily, but as hope faded, defiance turned to grief and then acceptance of her fate. As much as she tries to forget her past and move on, the precious few items she has remaining anchor her to a mysterious past. A faded family portrait found in a box under the oak and a star sapphire ring surrounded with diamonds. With no identity and no one to re recognize her, she now spends her time like a specter, waiting and wondering when the day will come, when she too will fade from existence, her footprints in the sand washed away by the passing tide. So treasure all your memories, good and bad, for you never know. One morning you may wake up to find everyone you know has vanished and all and memories are all that you're left with. Yep, Twilight Zone. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. That's a that's a fun one, like uh, dimension hopping. There was no clear line there where um where it was clear that she hopped over, but I it might have been the, the pregnancy, it might have been the birth. Yeah. Um It's tough to say. But uh something happened. And you know, it it, it begs the question, was she, was she sick? Was this a woman who uh, fabricated memories of uh, mm -hmm. childhood that never existed and, you know, very much exists in our world, but just, you know, can't put pieces together. Yeah. Or is this someone who, unfortunately, through cracks in the universe, found just their kinda, way to a different yeah, realm off. of existence where they did not play out the same story? You know, yeah. it's the difference between Earth uh, 542 versus 647. Mm-hmm. You know, there are infinite realities, people. There is some universe somewhere where, you know... Where everything went right in some universe she, where she everything is, went wrong. Uh, she is married to Brad and they have a child and it's a beautiful life together. Mm -hmm. She unfortunately transitioned somehow into a universe where Brad was never even fucking born. Matthew is different from Brad. Shit, I'm, I'm getting my guys mixed up. It's too many dicks going around. Yeah. Matthew. Too many... Clive. Like, un, un, uh, yeah, the names don't matter. So you yeah, know, exactly. It's pronoun. Here's pronoun. This is pronoun story. Mm -hmm. So this one is going to be the last one on this episode. I imagine we'll cover more. There won't be as much of an intro to the next episode. Yeah. And we'll just hop right back into the story. Even though there isn't really a carryover narrative. Um, there isn't really a carryover narrative, mm -hmm. but it's still a series. Yeah. Um, it just I'm, seems right now that this guy just cataloged a bunch of 
random short story events. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that there will at least be a handful of stories that touch back to other stories something. he's told. You know, like something Perhaps. in this universe, like tying the whole world together. It would be interesting. I just don't know how many of those things could exist. Yeah. But it's possible. There's like, definitely you know, narratives. Two to three, something like that. Yeah. Part eight is called Cracks and Bones. It's uh, it's about uh, buttholes and penises. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> crack, crack, right cracks in. and boners. The, the more stories I collect, the more I start to question what our reality actually is. Like Plato's Allegory of the Cave, one of my favorite. Perhaps what we think of as real is nothing more than a flickering shadow across a dim wall. Our minds try their best to piece together these echoes of reality with our limited senses, but the great world of truth lies beyond our reach and comprehension. But there are some of us who can and do perceive reality very differently to the rest of us. After reading my last two stories, my friend Steve spoke of one of these people, his ex-girlfriend, Christine. They met at university where they attended the same psychology course. From the time he first saw her, he knew that she was special. She had an otherworldly quality to her, mixed with a strange intensity that he saw in few others. She was exceptionally bright, almost inhumanly so, and it took several weeks of relentless courting before she relented to finally starting to date him. It was months into their relationship that Steve was able to piece together why Christine was like no other person he had known. Christine was an individual with a rare form of synesthesia, which gave her a very unique perceptive on the world she processed she she processed stimuli in a very different way her brain mixed up her senses so she could hear colors smell sounds taste numbers that sounds dope <laughs> sounds like when I'm on mushrooms. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, man, I'm just on mushrooms. Oh, but yellow. Like, forever. Yellow is so good, dude. Oh, I feel it. it tastes like lemons. I've been on mushrooms since the day I was born, and I'll be on mushrooms till the day I die. Yeah, she sounds wild. <laughs> she was a genius at mathematics because she could intuitively feel the right answers. They would taste right to her. She had this ability for as long as she could remember, and growing up, she had assumed everyone could do it, too. It was not until third grade when she asked her teacher why the school bell always smelled like oranges did she discover she was different. Her classmates would laugh at her and call her a freak, so she would avoid talking about her abilities and kept it secret throughout the high school. Her synesthesia only got stronger as she got older. By the time high school ended, she'd already decided to devote herself to the study of the human mind so she could learn more about herself. Steve was the first person since primary school that she had trusted enough to tell. She loved the fact that Steve was also a psychology major and was just as intrigued as she was about her ability. 
They spent countless hours discussing how she experienced the world, which was so much richer and varied than he could imagine. She told him that the number one tasted like chocolate, three was cinnamon, six was garlic, and eight was cut grass. For her, doing multiplication, for example, was like cooking. She could taste the result and know if the answer was right. So what is eight times three if you're mixing cut grass and cinnamon? Gross. That's what it is. It's gross. It seemed as if she experienced a whole new other world that no one else sensed. The most intense of her sensations was for colors. Each color had a unique voice and personality that spoke to her, especially when she touched it. Red was an old woman, kind and gentle, like a grandmother. Blue was angry and impatient, constantly rushing her. Green was stern and strict, while yellow was proud and arrogant. Black was pure silence, the absence of all sound. Her favorite was white, seductive and passionate. She is She freak. loved wearing white. Uh-huh. <laughs> There was one color she truly feared, though. Dark gray. Even just a shade above black, and she would start to hear whispers rising from the silence. A few shades lighter, and the voices would get louder. Evil voices whispering in her ear, delighting and telling her how skin would be flayed strip by strip from her conscious body. How her flesh would be devoured and torn from her bones while she was awake. How her eyeballs would be scooped from her skull so she could see a thousand pointed teeth tearing at her face. Needless to say, she hated nighttime and the dark. She had to always sleep with the lights on and with sleeping tablets so she wouldn't dream when her eyes were closed. When Steve and Christine moved in together, they found an old apartment in a nice neighborhood with white plaster walls all around. It was perfect for them. Close to the university and their work, very spacious and surprisingly affordable. Christine had loved the feel of it the moment she saw it, and Steve would have no complaints with how much friskier she was in this white apartment. Steve was very careful to avoid any gray in the house. Each room was a different color to match its purpose. Their study desk was green and their kitchen was red. Their bedroom, in particular, was furnished in white, from the painted wardrobe to the white bed linen and the white carpet. Steve even took care with the lighting to avoid any shadows, casting gray spots in the room. In their first week there, both had failed to attend any classes due to their extensive love-making sessions. It was after one of these particularly passionate sessions while Steve lay asleep on the bed that Christine noticed a faint crack in the opposite wall. Against the stark white plaster, the thin gray line seemed to whisper imperceptibly to her from across the room. And while it annoyed her, she decided to deal with it tomorrow, as they had a lot of catching up with classes to do, so she took her sleeping pills and drifted off to a dreamless slumber. For the next day, she had completely forgotten about the crack until she was in bed again, staring at it. It became like an itch she couldn't scratch. It became more noticeable because she knew it was there. It called and it beckoned to her, whispering to her to get closer. The more she gazed at it, the wider and thicker the gray crack seemed to get. She nudged Steve, who reassured her that she was imagining things. 
He assured her he would paint over the wall on the weekend if it bothered her that much. True to his word, Steve filled the hairline crack with plaster and painted over the wall. Twice. It didn't help. She could still hear the voice calling to her. Her strategy was now to avoid looking at the wall, to banish it by ignoring it. But in her mind, she could still see that crack, now the width of a thick pencil. She was sure that the last words she could hear repeatedly as she drifted to her medicated sleep was a ghostly, I'm here, and no more hiding. One night, she decided she could ignore it no longer and had to face it, and as she stared at the crack that went across the entire wall, she gasped as a bony finger started to poke out from its center and started to explore. She watched in mute horror as a second skeletal finger reached out from the gap and started feeling around the edges. Fucking finger bagging that crack in the wall. Yeah, you like that. She screamed so loud that Steve fell off the bed as he woke and pulled off his sleeping mask. Christine pointed at the empty wall, crying with teary eyes about a skeleton crawling behind there. Steve could see nothing, but no amount of consoling would convince her to spend another night in that room. So she ended up staying over at a friend's place overnight, and refused to go back to the apartment until the wall was knocked down to prove she wasn't crazy. Hey man, open concept. Open concept fuck palace. Do it. <laughs> While Steve was hesitant to lose their bond by destroying a perfectly good wall to chase some ghost, he weighed that up against losing a great apartment and his girlfriend. With great reluctance, he laid down some plastic on the floor and smashed a crowbar against the wall as Christine watched. While there used to be a covered-up hairline crack, there was now a gaping hole that Steve started tearing at with his hands. With a quarter of the wall ripped, both Steve and Christine were stunned to find a crouching human skeleton stuffed against the cavities and covered in cobwebs. They called the police to report their gruesome discovery. After extensive questioning, they were cleared of being suspects as the body had been there long before Steve and Christine were even born. In the decades past, the building had shady tenants and a very different neighborhood, a known crime hotspot. It was the slum area that had been slowly gentrified over the past few years, its history plastered and painted over until it was respectable. The skeleton was traced back to a missing persons case from 1973, reported as missing by her mother. The victim was a young prostitute with a petty criminal record. A profile the police back then devoted precious few resources or sympathy to follow up. The police thought it was likely she was raped, murdered, and walled up by one of the previous occupants, a notorious gang member who himself was killed in 1982 in a fight over money. The skeletal remains were eventually given a proper burial next to her long-deceased mother, a long-overdue reunion. Luckily for Steve, the apartment owner was also understanding enough to pay for the repairs to the wall, given the circumstances. However, try as they might, the rest of their life couldn't return to normal for the couple. The ordeal gave Christine constant nightmares about skeletons breaking through the wall, despite sleeping pills, nor would the voices stop tormenting her. 
She eventually had to turn to harder narcotics to find any release to escape from her reality. The pressures of completing a degree and caring for Christine's drug abuse put an unbearable strain on their relationship, and they broke off soon after. It was mentally too difficult for either of them to cope. Since then, Steve has been in and out of several relationships over the years. A few days ago, he decided to track down Christine again to get more details for the story, and he ended up speaking with her parents. Christine continued to struggle with drug addiction for several years after their breakup. Chronically short of money, she was constantly on the move from place to place. Her last known location was a rundown motel, where she had skipped rent and left all of her meager belongings behind. Her parents had tried to track her down and even enlisted the help of a private investigator. Christine was eventually found a few months ago. The motel she had stayed at was being demolished to make way for new apartments. In her former room, behind a wall with a crack running across it, her skeletal remains were found, trapped between the dark grey concrete. Damn! She was trying to make sure there was no skeleton there and became the skeleton. <laughs> I just think uh, life has a funny way of ending when you uh, when you perpetuate that type of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, that was a, that was a wild ride. You know what I'm starting to relate this to? What's up? There's a podcast slash program on, I believe, Amazon Prime, probably. Um, it's called Lore. And the story is very much like this it's a it's a guy who you know he claims to be like an investigator and and someone who's very interested in telling stories so mm -hmm. he's he's delved into history for the most unexplainable events he could think of and you know he tells uh stories about diseases and lobotomies and just weird turns of events and it's a very intriguing program, and the podcast I find a little hard to listen to, but having the physical stimuli of something to watch mm -hmm. as the story gets devolved, um, I believe it's an Amazon Prime show, don't quote me on that, but Lore is a very interesting program to watch because it's reminiscent of those Unsolved Mysteries type of feeling that, yeah. that like you know, these types of stories also follow. So for me, what we just did is like a fun episode of lore, yeah. but um, it's all by the same narrator and it's following his path as he uncovers um, interesting stories. Huh. Now, what I am starting to ask is, why does he stop telling stories? What is he going to learn that haunts him as a yeah. person, which brings us the finale of this series? Mm -hmm. I think part three is probably the most interesting for me to think of right now yeah. um, as a storytelling device, mm -hmm. because he seems very interested to be telling these stories right oh, yeah, now. Yeah. You know, I've I've dug into the meta concept of this story and he is very much like people keep telling me things. It's fun. I'll continue sharing it with you. Yeah. And like I'm waiting for him to be like I have found out what is behind darkness. I no longer wish to tell stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> See you later, gang. <laughs> like I, I opened the, the wrong door. 
I saw something I will never forget. It is not God. God is dead. (laughs) And then just like, there are no more stories. He just stopped one day. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm anticipating that. So I think that makes part three super enticing. Mm -hmm. But part two could be interesting because I just see it going down this rabbit hole more. You know, I think almost each of the stories, with the exception of Gurgles and Bugman, each of the stories has almost progressively gotten creepier. At least conceptually. Uh, Yeah. With the exception of Gurgles and Bugman, I think those just reach into, Mm. like, a stereotypical, like, primal fear. Yeah. (laughs) Of being a a child and imagining terrifying nightmare fuel. Well, that's that's something about it as well, is they're all a different fear. Oh, absolutely. Like, some of them are a little more direct. Some of them are a little more, like, you know... Whoa, like especially um Aunt Aunt Mary, Aunt Mary. I believe it was. Yep, Aunt Mary. Um like what was the thing that she killed? You know? It was just the maid. She I was mean, like she was like stuffing her husband into the basement. She's like, shh, shh, shh you're gonna <laughs> yeah. be fine. I'm gonna kill the other one. And he's like, What? And she closes the hatch <laughs> and she like covers it with the carpet and she turns around and she is convinced that the guy cleaning her house is her husband. And he's like wearing a suit and he's like, he's like, Aunt Mary, are you all? And he like, and she gets whacks him on the head yeah, with a fucking just, frying pan, just, rolls him into a carpet, puts him in the back of the Cadillac, drives to a fucking coast, undoes the rug, and he stares at her. And he's like, what? And she just stabs him several times and chucks him off the cliff. By the top, the cops show up. The cops get there and they're like, what happened to Gustavo? You're really great fucking uh butler and she just smiles and jumps off the cliff only later when they find the husband and they see that like he was like writing a story on the bottom of of the lid is the twist revealed he loved gustavo and they had a romantic relationship together and mary had mary came wise to it and the doppelganger thing is just a misunderstanding Yeah. <laughs> very easy to explain. Now that you think about it, very easy to explain. Yeah. Gurgles and Bugman, I... super easy to explain. Let me explain it to you. Um, I'd like to hear this one. The kid, uh, the kid was watching the TV. The TV absolutely worked. The parents are just <laughs> the parents are the perpetrators. What he actually found was footage of the parents of the parents as uh, as they were growing up playing pranks on other people in the neighborhood and what they were actually doing was fucking people and not like sucking the back of their necks. What was coming out of the the dad's costume was actually his penis. Um, and not because, because you wouldn't realize it because of the darkness of the footage, but it was actually him walking around on his hands with his feet <laughs> flapping around in the air. And what came out of the prosthetic bug head was actually his cock. And that's why Gurgles found it so funny because Gurgles was actually his mom in a, in a bald cap <laughs> And she just found she just found this Tom fuckery to be far too silly. Um, each of these stories is easy to explain. Oh yeah, easy to explain. Lo- logic out the wazoo. Logic, it it's there. You just have to, yeah, like Rod Sterling says, you just have to you know look for it. Accept it. Yeah, it's just Twilight Zone, baby. Um, any any fun thoughts? Any funny funny notes? Um. 
anything you'd like to see from from what's coming up? Because I, I already said how I want yeah. this to progress. I, I literally want it to just be questions like I don't want I don't want to know kind of where the the uh the rabbit hole ends, right? I don't want to get deep enough to hit the bottom. It's fair. I think we're gonna get to some point. I'm I'm sure at some point there will be an end. I don't think any of these stories have been bad. No. And I, and I don't think any of them have left me confused. I would say they're all fairly well written. Oh, yeah. And uh, they're perfect length, in my opinion. Um, I guess I am just... A part of um, a part of me is just saying, but how long can you tell fucky little yeah, supernatural stories? I would have. Why liked is them... this three parts long? You know. Yeah, I would have liked them to be a little bit longer. Like we're kind of on the the progression to have, you know, what like twenty five stories ish. Um, we got to nine. Yeah, nine out of. We got to nine. Yeah, that's and a I third think... of it. No, that's that's actually half. I remember seeing um, in the document that there are eighteen stories. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, apparently the stories get longer from this point forward. Perfect. That's exactly what I want to see. Yeah, that might I, that know. might be more interesting. We might get a carry on narrative from mm-hmm. this point. A little bit more world building. I mean, honestly, at this point, the narrator has complete free reign to kind of turn this into whatever he needs to turn it into. Yeah. Um, if this starts to devolve into, like, I had a crazy demons experience again? and now it, it's all I'm talking about. Not necessarily demons, but just, like, let's just say the narrator now in his adulthood witnesses something mm-hmm. and then chooses to tell that story in parts for the rest of the episode. I wouldn't be upset because he's laid foundation that this is the type of stuff that interests him. Yeah. So if he finds himself in a situation that's hard to describe and he decides to tell it for multiple parts, I'd be on board. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope, and by ruining that there are 18 parts, I just hope that the next nine are driven. Substantial. Right. That they provide... Enough forward movement and momentum. If not the same amount we've gotten so far. Yeah, I would be... If if we had exactly the same amount of momentum... If it doesn't go anywhere, but it just continues to tell fun fun stories like i'm not gonna be disappointed this has been a a very well put together little uh you know book Mm -hmm. and and this could very well just be a collection of short stories stephen king did that kind of shit all the time fucking graveyard shift scary stories to tell in the dark scary stories to tell in the dark like this is nothing new you know um but at the same time it's uh it's fun it's fun to read Mm -hmm. um this has been episode 162 of Lots of Pasta here with Where Am I? I? And uh, we're we're reading these uh, these fucking campfire tales for all you boys and girls. Um, I will probably have him back sooner rather than later so mm-hmm. that we could get through more of these. Um, seeing as how there isn't really a narrative that's carrying over, mm-hmm. maybe we could uh, pop through them pretty quick. I will say that it does excite me to know how quickly this is coming out. That is yeah, something that... Like, that we're going to be getting through this. Yeah, like, I don't enjoy having to wait 
10, 12, 15 weeks between <laughs> recording and it coming out. And I'm like, but I understand that, you know, from your perspective, that's how... That's crazy. It's, it's um, best to do it that way. What was our longest? It was about think, like three I think, months. I think Baraska... Baraska had like seven or eight parts with Django. And I know that even though they were split, between different sessions, because the guy literally wrote another part after we had recorded the first one. Huh. Um, he recorded another 50% of his story, so we went from four parts to, like, seven or eight, I think. And by part seven, we were just, like, so done. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it had, it had seriously been, like, if it's every two episodes, that had seriously been across the board, like, 21 weeks of storytelling. <laughs> wow. It's like half a year. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, this is going to be quick. This is going to be like, um, if this is coming out now, this is going to be like the May into June kind of fun frame. little month cap. Yeah. Um, fun little ditty to carry over. And it's a good, it's a substantial size. You know, mm -hmm. 50 pages is a good breadth. We always get a thick amount of story in that. And um, I'm excited to see what comes next. Same, same. All right, folks. You, uh, you stay tuned and stay safe during this uh, quarantine time. We will be here telling the tales, spooking the spooks. See you next time. Wait till the days end when the moon is high A little rise with the tide with the lust for life out oh, I'm messing around me and we'll run into horror And then we'll look across the land until we stand at the shore I'll wait till days end when the moon is high And then I'll rise with the tide with the lust for life out oh, I'm messing around me and we'll run into horror And then we'll look across the land until we stand at the shore